Nick Sabo has this concept of social scalability. We may come from different areas and have totally different interests, but we can both use the internet and we can both use Bitcoin. There's no part of using Bitcoin that requires um, you to like embrace my values. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+, and with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, Big Casino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to Big Casino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for the people of the U.S., who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stack in more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase. But also, not just that, you can also get 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar spent over 50000 annually. If you'd like to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions all available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th, 2022 in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show. So just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la and use the code PETER. Gee, how you doing, man? Doing good. How you doing? Good. Good to finally meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you in person. Sunny Miami. Sunny Miami. Well, I've been following you on, online on Twitter for a long time. Uh, a few interactions here or there. Uh, Danny was uh, a big proponent of getting you on to discuss this subject. Nice. I've, um, 
I've stood and observed the ESG thing from a background for a while, trying to tr- trying to figure out what it is, not just immediately dismiss it, but uh, I've uh, over time been been kind of increasingly concerned about how it works and the impact. But at the same time, somebody who, who thinks about the environment cares about responsible investing. It it is something I'm acutely aware of. I have uh, done a couple of interviews recently with Alex Epstein and uh, Andrew Desler, and I've got an evolving kind of view on climate change and how it's dealt with. And most of all, I come to a point where I just don't fucking know what we do. But uh, I thought you would be a great person. Danny thought you'd be a great person to get into uh, into this with. So thank you for coming in, man. It's uh, good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, no, and I, I appreciate that. I've, I've watched both those interviews. I found them both really interesting. I think the problem that you run into with people who have a, a really strong point of view on one issue or another is that those uh, podcasts, like both of them, they seem to get really emotional very quickly. <laughs> so um, kind of in anticipation of this podcast, I did a little bit, little bit of uh, like research myself. So one of the things that uh, Andrew Dressler said in particular was that the people who don't support renewables, uh, they're anti-science, and uh, it's just not the case. So I think there's a couple of things that because Bitcoiners in general are really focused on Bitcoin, they don't understand the full context of what's happening with ESG. And then in particular, they haven't really uh, done their homework on what's happening in terms of uh, energy transitions. So I thought I'd maybe first talk a little bit about what's the what's the background of um, ESG, and then we can dive into specifically like, hey, what is an energy transition? And, and that's something that in particular... Andrew Dressler didn't bring up because it doesn't support. His. There's a couple of like key terms in renewables, uh, and just in terms of just so people know my background, you know, I run a TikTok called the Bitcoin Files, uh, where I talk about Bitcoin. Got sixty five thousand followers. Nice. Uh, I used to be. Uh, Do you dance? No, <laughs> I I did one dance. Didn't get any views. Okay. <laughs> um, but so I I, uh, I also was a co mod of the Bitcoin Club on Clubhouse. Um, so I heard from a lot of different people from different walks of life, and then. Um, in, in the real world, sort of, um, I, I was um, a corporate finance executive at uh, GE uh, in the beginning of my career, um, where we focused on uh, financing industrial energy equipment. And I've looked at the returns of people who are investing in things like renewables and stuff like that. Prior to this, I worked in uh, leveraged finance for private equity transactions. So I have a little bit of a glimpse into the world of um, finance. Um, and, and so specifically when it came to things uh, like Andrew Dressler specifically didn't bring up things like capacity factors, which is how often does the sun shine? If you live in a cloudy country, you know the capacity factor for a solar farm is going to be low. Yep. Capacity factor for a wind farm sometimes can be low. And then you think about how do these renewables get in- integrated into the grid? And then what is the pace of transition that can happen? So energy transitions is a, is a term that Vaclav Schmiel talks about. Um, this is an author widely recognized as kind of an authority in um, a number of topics, but you know Bill Gates supports him and a ton of people support him, um, and they read his work to understand what's happening. But what's interesting is I think because maybe some Bitcoiners um, aren't interested in the space, they they haven't you know they don't understand the breadth of work that's been done out there. So when someone like Andrew Dressler makes kind of outlandish claims, no one's able to refute them because uh, they don't know where it's coming from. Yeah, it's quite interesting you point that out as well because um, when he said people are anti-science and I think Epstein also like conversely said uh, the people who are uh, proponents of uh, some of the ideas regarding climate change are maybe anti-human and I think those two extremes don't oh, help. Oh, it's a total extreme. Um, you know, part, part of what happens is the science, um, 
the science can get uh, corrupted by uh, incentives. So, so maybe let's take a step back and talk for a moment about uh, what it, like where did ESG start? Talk about the beginnings of that and then how it gets to this conversation that we're, we're in today. Can, can we go back one step? Yeah. Um, I just always think it's helpful for context at the start for people to understand. They know my position, but I'll repeat it. But to understand your position yeah. with regards to climate change, whether you think it's real, whether you think humans are causing it, whether you think we can do anything about it, whether we shouldn't. There's um, there's a broad spectrum of people, certainly within our space, who have uh, uh, views ranging from uh, those who think uh, climate change is not an issue, that we don't need to do anything about it. Some people think it is an issue, not sure what we do about it. Some people are you know, considered hysterics because they think we should change everything we have about society to uh, protect the environment. So it's probably good for you to, for context, set yours. I'll do mine afterwards. Okay, sure. So um, climate change is very real. Um, it's happening. Um, the climate models are probably accurate. But I think the issue that you get into is the difference between some of the science work that's been done on, hey, the temperature is going to increase because of CO2 emissions. Uh, and actually, policy-wise, what does that mean we need to do as a society to react to it? And I think, um, you know, one side of the debate, maybe the Alex Epstein sort of folks, um, maybe not him specifically, they ignore the science. And then I think the people who are supporting renewables generally tend to ignore, like, the policy implications and, like, the empirical, uh, you know, how do you actually put together an electrical grid and how do you put together a functioning civilization um, that can have, like, flourishing for everyone. So my my and like because my background is like investing in renewables and supporting that um, I, I'm generally actually in the past I've been pro renewables. Um, after doing a little bit more research and reading some of the scientific literature on how energy transitions happen, um, and then seeing some of the outcomes of renewable-based uh, policy in places like uh, Germany and Sri Lanka, uh, my opinion has shifted that we need to focus more on things that are both good for the grid, uh, but also zero carbon emission, uh, like nuclear power. That's good. Okay, I think uh, I think I've come to a similar position. So I was definitely somebody who was concerned about climate and hadn't spent near enough time understanding the implications of policy change. That's where Alex Epstein was useful to me. Uh, he's almost immediately written off by people within the uh, scientific community who are researchers into climate change, uh, someone like Desla himself, or mm. even Catherine Hoho, somebody else I interviewed for my old podcast, Defiance. Um, and I think that's sometimes because of the way he structures his arguments. But uh, I think if you get past that, and actually there is some realities that he's very clear on, on the implications of these policy changes and how it impacts society. So I've certainly shifted more towards empathetic to the things that uh, not even just uh, Alex Epstein is talking about, but also uh, Michael Schellenberger. He's another person who's been very good at this. So I've become more empathetic to that, but I'm kind of in a position where I feel like there is an impending growing issue with climate change. Uh, and I actually don't know if that can be solved and if enough work is actually being done on, say, mitigation. And and I also don't feel like there's enough information out there that the models of climate change are good, but the models that kind of map what the implications of climate change will be onto various parts of people for various people in different parts of the world. I think a lot of more work needs to be done there. But yeah, I've come to this more confused middle ground area. I think so one of the things that helps clarify the debate for me is a mental model on how knowledge is generated in society in general. So, you know, when you think about the mental model that we're taught in college and high school and stuff like that is that, hey, there are, you know, there's one group of people 
that are um, experts in a specific field. They may be a little bit lower status, but they really know their stuff. There's another group of people that are um, like elites who are generalists, and they may not know the specifics, but when the experts get together and reach some type of synthesis on what needs to be done, they will then take that and uh, implement it. So the, the arrow of knowledge kind of, or the arrow of influence flows from experts to elites. That's the mental model we're taught. But I think if you look at every civilization outside of ours in history, the arrow of influence actually flows the other way. So people who are uh, elites in civilization can determine, um, you know, fundings and things of that nature. Um, and so they actually tend to uh, influence the way that uh, experts uh, operate. And uh, with, with that in mind, I think that um, sort of like, so the, the critique generally of ESG uh, more broadly than some of the stuff we're talking about. Um, Aswath Damodoran is a uh, professor of valuation at uh, NYU, widely considered an authority. And his critique of ESG fundamentally comes down to this, which is there's an incredible amount of money to be made by people who are uh, ESG consultants, accounting firms that want increased disclosures in like 10Ks, um, you know, investment firms like BlackRock that are you know, charging uh, customers uh, higher fees for the same product. Like they have an ETF, which charges more fees for a climate-focused investment versus an index fund, which is comprised of the same companies. Um, and then just in general, it, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like uh, maybe clout or uh, like political social capital that can be developed by being at the forefront of like a large social movement. And so Aswath Damodoran's like primary critique is like a lot of the ESG type of stuff is like pretty misguided. Because it's incentive driven. It's largely incentive driven. Um, so like in the past, where I was actually going to start with was kind of like talking about Milton Friedman back in the 1960s and 1970s. So mm -hmm. there's, al there's always a debate in all societies about how resources should be allocated. One of the things that people would you know, come to companies and say is uh, if managers of companies would say, managers uh, should be rewarded with like perks for running the company. So, you know, managers have a larger share. Uh, people who were like socialists would say, well, you know, if you run an electric company and somebody doesn't pay the electricity, you shouldn't shut off the power for them. And Milton Friedman actually ended up winning this debate by saying you should manage companies for the benefit of the shareholder. So shareholder value maximization. And that's been derided. But the reality is like, if you don't shut off power um, to like make people pay for their electricity, then the electricity company doesn't have uh, the ability to invest in the future. So they can't expand to meet demand. That's a major problem in developing countries where people, even like large corporations will steal electricity. So the the grid can't be upgraded. So you can't upgrade your entire civilization because you know somebody wants to be nice. So in order to like actually advance a society, sometimes you need a Milton Friedman type of person to say that like hard decisions need to be made. And if people want to like have a personal preference towards like paying the electrical bills of um, you know um, like senior citizens and stuff, they should certainly do that. Um, but they, it shouldn't be like the people who are trying to implement it uh, through like weird policies and stuff. They don't know the impact that those policies will actually have. Oftentimes, policies there's a policy failure between there's a difference between what people imagine will happen and and what actually ends up happening. And so you can have an entire civilization bogged down in regulations, uh, kind of like ours is now, where no one can kind of do anything and make progress um, because of all these random, you know, policies. But the the real way that society progresses is not through some bureaucrat making a policy. Um, for example, renewables are largely able to be added to grids because of the ability of natural gas peaking plants uh, to come online. 
natural gas is very cheap in the United States because, you know, a couple of random people in a couple of oil fields in America discovered fracking technology. So human civilization is advancing because a couple of like, you know, Texas cowboys, you know, in Oklahoma or wherever are like figuring, are playing around with oil rigs. It's not advancing because, you know, someone is giving a speech on the steps of Congress. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So could you map that whole, when you talked about the society advances by hard decisions and gets bogged down by regulations and perhaps more kind of social policies with regards to income distribution, can you map that to things like, you know how Elon Musk discussed previously, you know, I can't remember the last time NASA went to the moon, but it was quite a long time ago. And he said, we haven't really advanced beyond there. It's only since he's taken space programs private, we've seen more advancement. Can you map that whole thesis to, to issues such as that? And are we generally seeing a slowdown in the advancement of society? Yeah, that, so the Elon Musk question is particularly interesting because, for example, um, firstly, in terms of ESG, you know, that's the strongest point against ESG that everyone, even non-finance people know Tesla and uh, even non-investors know Tesla because their cars are really cool. Everybody wants a Tesla. Elon Musk has probably done more for uh, the environment than any other player in the space today because people think Teslas are really cool. I mean, I know a lot of people who have orders for Cybertrucks. They're doing it because it's cool. They're not doing it because it's ESG. So if ESG wants to scale electric vehicles, the way they do that is by producing more Elon Musk type of people. However, what they've done is they've given him a negative score on ESG. Hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but specifically to your point, look, the, the way that, the you know, there are certain things that build civilizations. And I think of, for example, if you think about the Italian city-states, uh, wars, or if you think about America, um, you know, living on farms on a frontier, these types of things are like cauldrons for civilization because there is no, um, you know, court of a king that you can go to to like say some fancy words and, and advance yourself. You have to face off against nature or you have to face off against uh, an opponent. And if your civilization or your, you know, farm doesn't have functional institutions to deal with issues, uh, you know, the, the farm that's next to you will then buy your farm in liquidation or fr from the Italian city-state perspective, the, the, the people in the next town over will take over your, your city. So certain things form civilization. And the problem that we've run into in America is um, basically we're in a de-civilization process. So after World War II, we became the world hegemon. Uh, you know, we had the largest Navy in the world and we also had nuclear weapons and it provided a nuclear umbrella so that there was no kind of selection pressure for functionality. And um, on top of that, you had some changes in technology like the advancement of uh, television in people's homes, but also uh, transistor radios. So this is maybe a little bit controversial for, for people who like things like, you know, John Lennon and the Beatles and stuff. But I think a lot of those ideas were a net negative to society because instead of people learning from uh, their parents, you know, the accumulated knowledge of hundreds of years, they learned from a radio. So they just deleted all that progress. And then instead of learning from something like maybe an apprenticeship, like I'm from Michigan, a lot of people would go and work in a factory and learn from the older people how to, how to do things. Uh, instead of that, they went into a university. So you know, that's when the university system in the United States really took off. It was after World War II. And so, you know, the number of PhDs increased and all these other things increased that were the external manifestation of progress. But then, like, in reality, all the accumulated knowledge, all the stuff they would have learned from apprenticeship, the actual social technology for how to advance civilization was completely deleted. And then since then, we've had, um, you know, no matter how you look at it, there's all, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with what WTF happened in 1971. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Ben, who works on our show, was one of the authors of that. Right. And, and I mean, I think that's spreading everywhere. Um, but the idea be behind that is that basically 
um, you know, we're told that our society is advancing, that we're progressing, but there's a lot of measures that seem to indicate that's not the case. And, and I don't want to bring up too much history, but I that's think- That's fine. Keep yeah, going. I think the thing that you should think about is um, the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about like COVID-19, for example, you know, the stock market, it dived for a little bit, but then it came right back up. So if you were using GDP as an indicator of how well society is progressing, you'd think after two years of COVID-19, we were doing great, right? Well, now we're finding out that's not the case. But if you just depended on GDP, like a lot of these uh, prominent academics kind of want you to, you'd be caught off guard. And I think the, the analogy is in the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire was collapsing, there are no people who are writing letters saying, wow, we're in a you know, societal collapse. Instead, all you have is like little side indicators. Like I write a letter to you like, hey, I can't travel to Miami to meet up. You know, there are, uh, you know, um, brigands on the road, right? That type of thing. But if you actually look at like, you know, the equivalent of like a fossil record is like the Roman mines would throw off ashes and the ashes would drift over to Iceland and they'd get deposited like layer after layer in the ice. And so then if you took an ice core, you could, you could see like when there's more deposit that year, they had a lot of mining. When there's less deposits, they had less mining. So there's like physical indicators of the Roman Empire's rise and its fall. Huh. And, and, and so we don't have that measure today. We actually, I think we're a little bit confused on if our society is actually uh, increasing or uh, decreasing our kind of civilizational level. Do, do we, um, is, it, is a GDP figures inflation adjusted? They can be, yeah. But are they? They generally aren't, though. If you, I bet if you brought up a, a GDP chart, it wouldn't be an inflation-adjusted GDP chart. I'm not sure. I'm, I think I've, I might have seen it one way or the other. Yeah. But even, even if you adjust it for inflation, the point is that GDP doesn't necessarily capture what's happening, or the stock market doesn't actually capture what's happening. Um, and, I mean, the perfect thing is COVID-19, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, thinking about the response to COVID-19, it was, it was extremely, extremely delayed. And we invest billions of dollars. There's probably hundreds of thousands of people in America who work in like the military or who work in uh, FEMA and those types of things should have been on top of this. Instead, like in the beginning of COVID-19, um, you know, Balaji Srinivasan and some mm -hmm. of these A16Z investors were Balaji like- Balaji was great. He was like, you know what? You should wear a mask when you come in the office. You should wear gloves. And, and they vilified him. They were like, this guy's, uh, you know, out of control. He's a conspiracy theorist. And it's like, if you travel to China or Japan, you know, they would wear masks all the time if anybody's yeah. sick or not. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. And it, it just seems like they were completely caught off guard and unable to handle COVID-19. And that was like a civilizational threat, like a pandemic, you know? Pandemics have like ended cities and countries before. So they were completely unaware. And in fact, they vilified the people who like raised, like, hey, there's a concern here. And I think the question that we have to ask is, if we face another threat, like another COVID-19 situation, are we actually even well-prepared to deal with it? Because I, I think, again, after whatever, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years of a decivilizational process, there's no incentive for functional institutions. A lot of things kind of don't work. Right. And why do you think that is? Do you, do you think, do you bring it down just to the money or do you bring it down? Because you identified what, what the fuck happened in 1971. We know what happened then. Um, for those who don't, we came off the gold standard. Actually, when I say we, I should. That's different because in the in the in UK, we came with the gold standard a, lot, a long time ago, a right, long time right. before 1971. I think it might even been the 30s. But there is that. But there is also uh, one of the things that I've always been trying to think about is why have institutions started to fail? Have institutions started to fail because uh, there's more exposure to them, if and you know, people are more aware because we have uh, a wider uh, scope of media, we have social media. 
Or have they failed because they've got too big? Have they failed because politics is failing? Like, what is the reason institutions are failing? Because I'm not a burn-it-all-down person. Okay. I'm a strengthen and rebuild person. But sure. I, I, I'm trying to understand why institutions have failed. Has the state just got too big? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th I think... One, one, first of all, uh, I think, you know, some people listening might be wondering, like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. You know, like, we live in a great country, everything is wonderful, and we're the most advanced country in the world. But I, I think that, like, again, going back to that Roman Empire example, you, you don't know if your society is actually advancing or declining, because you may live in a beautiful suburb where everything is fine. You don't see any decline at all. Um, but I think the, to diagnose the issue, uh, an example would be, you know, a man uh, sees that his neighborhood has a park. Uh, elderly people are falling uh, when they're going from the sidewalk into the park. So he spends $500 on his own initiative, builds a set of wooden stairs. City comes in and they put red tape around it. They say, this is out of regulation. The city needs to build this. And, and it's going to cost anywhere from $60,000 to $115,000. That's a real event that happened in uh, Canada, I think. That's the thing. Can you find the escalators in uh, New York that cost like 25 million? Did you see about right, this? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure. I've seen one where it was like a bathroom cost like 10 million and then like in, in San Francisco, it costs a couple million to build a, a, a bus lane. Um, there's also like a train, uh, high-speed transit. It's supposed to go from like, I think, Los Angeles to San Francisco, which simply- 70 billion or something. 70 billion really. overrun. There's also- Yeah. Today it costs $62 million to replace eight escalators in New York. In 1931, it was $41 million to build the Empire State <laughs> Building. I mean, this is just insane. But some of that, I wonder how much of that is regulation, how much is that backhanders? How much is that? Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Select Eight all. I mean, I, I, so I think yeah. an example here, uh, something that's good historical context is people say nuclear is too expensive to build. Yeah. Right? And it's very frustrating because, again, going back to that conversation about how do we advance civilization, nuclear is zero carbon emission mm -hmm. and it's base load so that uh, you can keep it, and it's dispatchable, you can keep it running all the time and it solves all these problems uh, without having to disrupt the reliability of the grid. But what's happened is, um, you know, you end up establishing these these regulations. So then it, the the regulators get staffed by people whose incentives are to regulate, know, add more regulations. <laughs> um, there was an issue with pilots recently. Somebody crashed a plane. Uh, the guy was an experienced pilot. Not a real issue in terms of training or anything. They just added another hundred hours or five hundred hours of additional training that pilots need to have in order to qualify. So recently when you saw some flight disruptions, part of the problem is it takes a long time to bring up new pilots because of the, the weight of all these regulations. You know, since these regulations started on nuclear power, we haven't had a new nuclear power plant. The, right. The, the way that, so again, going back to like functional institutions, the way that you, you, you build things and you get better at building things is by building things. I, I, I learned how to woodwork uh, during COVID-19. So when I started, I had a single drill and like a ton of different bits like some, it would take me five minutes to switch the bits, then the battery would run out, right? That was the beginning of the summer. By the end of the summer, I was like a machine. I had like three different drills, tons of different batteries. Each one was already set up with a bit. And I was, and, and so there's like a learning curve that happens where you just get better at building things with higher quality and, and faster and stuff. So imagine if we had been building power plants, one power plant every single year for the last 50 years. Imagine the improvements in efficiency that we would have had. What did you make though with your woodwork? 
Oh, I made, uh, so I made a table. Uh, I made a bunch of like tables for school kids, like my cousins. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I helped make a more advanced like coffee table. Yeah, things like that. But for you though, what, what is the right amount of regulation? Because I'm, I'm not a no regulation person. I'll just be very clear. Sure. There's, there's certain things where I think you need forms of centralized regulation. I often refer back to what happened. There's a really good uh, film, I think it's called Dark Waters, um, who's that guy who wrote the book? Nathaniel... Nathaniel Rich. Yeah, Nathaniel Rich wrote a book. Uh, well, he wrote an article, and it was to do with DuPont and how they were dumping um, chemicals into the into the river and, and caused a bunch of cancers for people in the cities. I, I think a zero-regulation environment runs a risk of uh, other consequences, but I also recognize too much regulation. What I don't know is what is the right balance. Yeah, it's a definitely a difficult question, and it's something that probably needs to be litigated in public. One of the issues that you run into with ESG is, you know, people, it's it's an undemocratic process, right? Uh, and then one of the things that's happening with ESG in particular is people, um, like CEOs in particular, are using the, the moral language around ESG um, to sort of push their own interests. So, for example, uh, I read a study in uh, Institutional Investor where they looked at Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola okay. gave themselves a very strong rating for water sustainability. Turns out 90% of the water usage was excluded from their own study. And then they also were depleting the aquifer in places like uh, India, where the citizens can't actually stand up and do anything. And then re, uh, replenishing the aquifer in like America or wherever else. And then they were counting those two against each other. But then like locally, they have destroyed that aquifer in India. Similar situation with Nestle. They deplete aquifers in like Florida and California, um, but they still get a like they get they can get all these NGO groups to sign off that they're a great like you know social res socially responsible partner. Story after stories like this, and then also you get people like um, Elizabeth Holmes mm -hmm. and the WeWork CEO, mm -hmm. right? So Theranos was a scandal um, and a fraud, but for WeWork it was just a bad business model. But then the way that they got around that was they used uh, things like they, they made up a new finance term, community adjusted EBITDA. So you're losing money, but there's like a better impact for the community. And so these so when someone is talking too much about ESG, it's kind of like a red flag, actually, that they're, yeah. they're doing things in a negative way. There's also this issue of um, uh, Baptists and bootleggers where somebody who's a larger company, like, for example, an Amazon, might want more regulations to increase the cost of entry for new competitors. Yes. Right? Um, and so, but just back to your question about the appropriate amount of regulation, I don't know how much regulation is appropriate, but there are some common sense situations where the amount of regulation we have is wildly inappropriate. I think some of the recent examples, uh, so even something as critical as like the FDA, right? They regulate things like, you know, vaccines and stuff. Um, part of the reason we have, uh, we had this issue recently where uh, baby formula was unavailable in the yeah. United States. Baby formula in Europe is just as safe as baby formula in America. I don't think it's a controversial statement, but baby formula from Europe is banned from entering the United States. So that's very, it's very weird. And then just getting back to, like I talked about earlier, the inability to respond to events. Events are happening faster than these regulators can respond. So something needs to change where like, at some point, you just need to allow the baby formula to flow from Europe to the United States. Similar situation, I talked about COVID-19. There is a, a potential pandemic brewing right now when it comes to monkeypox, yep. right? And the situation that we're in right now is there are vaccines available in Europe. They've been, they've been okayed by the European regulator, and the FDA has not okayed uh, the way that they were stored, for example. I think most people trust that European regulators will do a good job, and they would want those vaccines here to protect vulnerable populations. But 
it, it doesn't matter in front of the institutional imperative that there needs to be regulations. So these people are willing to like kind of allow the destruction mm -hmm. of society in, in certain areas, um, but they're not willing, like in, 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 there's just so many examples. During COVID-19, uh, a scientist, she came up with a way to test for COVID-19. And they told her like, if you don't stop this, like you're going to jail. Like, so, so there's so many situations like this where these regulators are a force of their own. And um, sure, we need regulations. Like if somebody's polluting the water, of course we need to stop that. But the amount of regulations that they're putting on, they're unrelated to, to the things that we care about, like water safety. They're just there for their own purpose. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm, I think it's a careful balance. I mean, one of the things I always think about is when people talk about, well, we, we can't have regulate, we shouldn't have regulations. It's anti-free market. I think of terms of building regulations. I went to the uh, Ai Weiwei uh, exhibition in the in London once, and one of his exhibitions, he went out to this area of China where during an earthquake a number of the buildings collapsed. And the reason the buildings collapsed- Was it Chengdu? Yes. I lived in Chengdu for like six months. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think, well, I say it is, I don't, I don't it, know. Yeah, there was a big earthquake yeah. in Chengdu, so I imagine that was So that. him and his team went out there and they got all the steel beams or the girders that, that basically collapsed. And then they took that and they took it back to his warehouse and they built these sculptures out of them. And uh, But that to me, he did that as a way to teach him people about what happened with the corruption around building regulations in this area of China. So for me, I, I support that. I support building regulations. You don't want buildings to collapse. And I don't believe people will always self-police. I think certain regulations are helpful. In the UK, we had a massive fire, a place called Grenville. Yeah. Uh, did that make it over here, that news? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 80-odd people died, wasn't it? And, and that's because of the, the cladding that was used. So they got new regulation on cladding. There's certain things like that I think that are really important, especially if people are going to die, you know, get seriously ill. I think we need it. Do we need hairdressers to have a license to be able to cut hair? No, I don't. You know, that's where it goes. That was actually, that comes from Tyler Linholm when I was up in Wyoming. He mm -hmm. said they were trying to remove a bunch of the regulations because they had things like there was a license to be a hairdresser. He's like, you don't need a license to be a hairdresser. You're cutting hair. So I think there is that balance. I just don't know how it comes from. Perhaps it just comes from smart people like Tyler Linholm being in power and trying to stop this. Yeah, but so... I want to push back a little bit because those are okay. definitely both like super emotional examples. And I, I get it for both of those examples. But like one of the problems that we run into is a lot of these ESG type of people who are part of the decivilizational process uh, ru ruin society. Yeah. And then they point to the things that are ruined and say, you know, this is your fault. So, for example, because of safety regulations, pickup trucks have like ballooned in size. Right. And then now they point to the ballooned up pickup trucks and they say, well, you guys are driving these big pickup trucks. You don't need that big of a pickup truck. And it's like, yeah, I don't need it, but it's because of your you know, emphasis yeah. on safety that it's become that large. And a similar situation when it comes to real estate in America. So, you know, when it comes, like part of the thing that people in Bitcoin talk about a lot is that uh, things like real estate have developed a monetary premium. In some markets like Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley landlords have, you know, captured a ton of the value that was created by the Silicon Valley, you know, tech giants. So they so they use things like uh, safety, you know, preserving the 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 neighborhood and, and and measures like this in order to prevent new houses from being built. So you have a limited supply of housing in key places like Silicon Valley or New York City, and that's great for the people who own those houses. But it's bad for civilization because young people cannot go to New York City or Silicon Valley, where you know historically cities have been like the engines of uh, economic progress. So young people can't afford to live in New York City. You, you've got these people who have, uh, you know, they've got like a marketing degree. They want to make it in New York City and they can't afford to. All of their money, they can't save money. So they're spending their 20s 
like basically playing a lottery game. Like maybe they make it, maybe they don't. Either way, they're not saving money for their future. Mm. It's a very dangerous situation. And and it's it's not just um, housing. The starting in the 1960s, um, driven by these like environmental concerns, um, it allowed basically anybody to veto any project because you could just inundate them with concerns like, you know, the way that you're building this highway. This is a situation that happened in California, it resulted in massive cost overruns. Every single house in every single neighborhood along the route could say the way that you've built the wall uh, it clashes with the vibe, basically, and you, you need to build it a different way. Um, and it's it's it it puts a wrench in everything. And and so what's happened is we've become like a read only culture. I don't know if you ever burned CDs. You know, there's like yeah, I remember the read write CDs yeah. and the read only CDs, yeah. right? So we've become a society because no one has for whatever fifty years we've been stopped from building things by these environmental type of regulations. No one actually has experience in building things. So, you know, they're like, we're, we're stuck with basically what people built. The, the, all of our infrastructure is, is rotting and old. Um, you've been to New York City, right? Yeah. So I used to live in New York City. And every single day, I would walk from Grand Central Terminal, which is, yep, I know. that's the center of, you know, <laughs> that's the center of our countries. That's our commercial capital. And I would walk in the tunnel to Park Avenue. And every time it rained, it would just drench like your boots and stuff. And in fact, it got to the point where I noticed like they had garbage cans in the closets uh, to roll out to pick up the drops because it was it, there's no chance it's going to be fixed. So let's at least you know make sure there's not a mess. So that didn't change for like the five years that I lived there. And uh, I went back recently. Still not hasn't changed. changed. Not changed. Yeah. And in New York's uh, New York City subways are a total disaster. I mean, if you go to China, the subways are super clean and awesome. And there's definitely questions about the sustainability of uh, China's infrastructure build out. And there's definitely questions on build quality. Like the they tend to make things pretty gaudy and stuff. It's not clear that it's sustainable long-term, but they can still build things. If something gets destroyed, they rebuild it. Whereas in America, like we have no idea what's going on with the subway. Um, and in fact, during COVID-19, they were trying to make a list to make sure I think people are safe, like you know, subway employees. They don't have a list of employees of the you know, MTA. Let me give you a, an interesting recent example as well, just because just it's quite funny. Uh, I've, I've moved house recently, and the, ha the house I've moved to is a, is a new build. And I got to see all the planning permission documents that went back. It was probably over the space of two years to get permission to build this house. And lots of different things from there's, um, there's a big tree out. It's a protected tree. It's a 200-year-old tree. So one of the things is um, you can only, with a tree like that, you can only remove 25% of the roots to, to build the house because mm. the tree is protected. And I'm okay with that. It's a beautiful tree. Uh, but the most interesting one is when the building regs people came to sign off the house, they couldn't sign it off because there wasn't a, a wheelchair ramp up the step to go into the house. Mm. Now, again, I'm not opposed to uh, 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 regulations for access for wheelchair and to you know, public uh, facilities, train stations, etc. But bear in mind, this is my this is my house. Nobody in my house needs a wheelchair. But it couldn't get signed off to have one. And that... so. One got built, but it's a gravel uh, walkway up to the ramp. So even if you're in a wheelchair, you're not going to be able to get through this bit of gravel. But once it's signed off, I'm also then allowed to remove the ramp. I don't, there's no regulation that says I have to keep the ramp. You just cannot sign the house off. So what? this is the wasted productivity. There's the wasted productivity of the person coming to sign, the building regulations person to come to sign it off. There's the wasted productivity of the person building the ramp. And then there's wasted productivity of, oh, sorry, there's wasted materials. And then there's wasted productivity of getting rid of it for something that isn't even required. And that for me was just like, what the fuck is going on here? 
I, I, um, I, I, I've noticed a similar thing happening. Um, I think there's two ways to think about it. So the first is, are, do you guys have the DMV in, in England? Like we have a Department of Motor Vehicles. Oh, every, DVLA. Yeah. yeah. Every, for us, every American needs to go there. You need to like renew your, your plates and uh, you also have to pay like $500 to like own a car or whatever, right? How, how often do you do that? Uh, once a year. So you have to renew every year? Every year. It's, yeah, it's very expensive and it primarily impacts the poor. Um, and so, but the, but the point is when you walk into the DMV, because it's a government office and you're required to do it, otherwise you can't get from one place to another, uh, there's no competition for it. And it, it's a really poor experience to the point that it's like mocked in like children's movies, like in Zootopia, a sloth is, uh, you know, manning the DMV, right? And so it's like just a fundamental part of our culture that things are going to suck. And the problem is in the past, the, you know, the average American um, government employee was either like a, you know a person who grew up on a farm, uh, a frontiers person, right? Yeah. In the very deep past, but then even more recently, it was people who were only one or two generations removed from the frontier, people who had lived in farms. So they grew up with those like social codes. And the problem that we're in now, I, I believe, is, a deep reason for the morass in this country is every single government employee now has the soul of a DMV employee. Like it, it's just it's like the most frustrating thing that. You know, if you read the New York Times, they talk about things like state capacity and, and we need to build in this country again. But the problem is, um, you know, it's all DMV employees all the way down. Hold on. Why do you have to renew every year? I mean, dude, this is my frustration. Your, li- your license, essentially. Is it like a driving uh, you license? You don't need to renew your license. You need to renew your plates. At least What does that mean, your plates? You need, there's like a sticker that goes on your plate. It'd that, be like doing your tax, I guess, in the UK. Your road tax. Yeah. Right, right, right. But we, we do that online. So we have it. And actually, it's now automated. So, so if it's a road tax, I understand. That's a tax, fine. It gets renewed online. Um, uh, and you get a letter uh, that comes every year. But if you automatically renew, you don't need the letter. But it, it's, it's a 30-second job. Yeah. You actually have to go there to do it. You might be able to renew online. But the, the point is that basically during COVID-19, I had to renew my license. I had to show up in person. So for me, it's maybe more visceral. Um, you but might, a license is different from a road tax. A road tax is on the car. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You might yeah. be able to, so the, that specific thing, you might be able to renew. And there is a little bit of a frustration because it impacts the poor. And then that's yeah. different than uh, the, the license. But the point is you have to deal with these types of things all the time. Yeah. Um, and then like- the, And they're the hardest, by the way. I don't know what it's like here. Because I know here in the US, it's quite easy to fire somebody. If you want to get rid of somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the UK, if somebody's worked for you for two years, it's actually quite difficult. Right. You have to go through something called consultation, where you go through a process and can they be employed anywhere else. And the stupid thing about consultation is that if you know you're going to get rid of them, you're basically doing the consultation knowing you're going to get rid of them, having to find a way to still get rid of them. So right. it's a complete waste of time. But it's very hard to get rid of people who work for the government. Very hard. Is it the same here? Uh, that's my understanding. They have yeah. strong unions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that's so like that's an example of, of the type of process that uh, ESG type of people want to you know, implement here. Uh, maybe not as part of ESG, but generally as part of their, their politics. But think about the impact that has on countries like Italy or Spain, where the older people are generally you know, very well employed. They have great pensions. But then the younger people have high rates of uh, unemployment because nobody wants to hire a young person because you, you know, they could be a total wild card and like not work well and stuff. Mm. And I, I know in particular, like a, a lot of the companies that I've talked to in the past who are looking at expanding into Europe, they take that into consideration. Like I think France in particular is bad. Maybe the Netherlands is another one. Well, they're bad. really lazy in France. Right. They don't want <laughs> to work more than 25 hours a week. Is that and right? any, any rule change, they love a protest in France. Right. So any, any, any rule change, they're, they're getting their tractors out, they're spraying manure and everywhere. And, 
complaining about some shit or other. Right, right, right. And that's, that's, that's like, a, it's not me just hating the French as a neighbor. I mean, they're generally lazy and complain a lot. Well, I, so the, the <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, um, I, I like, you know, I like the French and uh, the French in particular are very good with uh, nuclear power. So, you know, full, and they're actually, uh, they've actually like, um, there's an attempt to nationalize their grid now to deal with some of the uncertainty there. But the, the point with the DMV employees is it's an experience that a lot of Americans have. Um, and, and the point is that basically like, you know, when you think about uh, America's like nation building overseas, mm-hmm. every single attempt to nation build has failed. Yeah, of course. Failed in Iraq, failed in Afghanistan, failed in Syria, failed in Libya, failed in Egypt, uh, failed in like Cambodia in the 90s. Every single attempt has failed despite you know, billions of dollars, in some cases, trillions of dollars, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of non-governmental organization, you know, state-sponsored people going over there to teach them, you know, how to develop their civilization. The problem is if every single one of, you know, your your citizens that you're sending over there is like, you know, in their heart of hearts, a DMV employee, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and so that's the, the like, it, they can't nation build overseas. And so then it's the same situation domestically. They can't nation build here in America. So they've inherited institutions they don't know how to run, and they can't build anything new to deal with new problems. Um, you're a, you're turning me into a libertarian. Is that no? I'm not a libertarian. And, you're and turning so, me into one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean I think the thing is that like look um, in in business sometimes we study like like war as like a metaphor. So yeah. there's this one guy uh, John Boyd who's a strat who was a strategist who formed some policies in America. One of the things he came up with is something called uh, an OODA loop, so observe, orient, decide, act. And the idea is if, if we're competing in business um, and my uh, decision-making cycles are faster than yours, I can potentially find you know, issues that your customers are having and address them very quickly. And um, from that perspective, for example, uh, you know, Apple's supply chain is run on these types of principles. Right. But um, you know, from the perspective of like what happened in Afghanistan, for example, so it, it's, and it's not just it's not just the decision-making cycle. It's also like the fact that uh, there's no feedback loop that corrects assumptions that are incorrect. And so what you have, I think in America, starting basically from the 1960s, you just have assumptions that are built on top of each other that are completely unrelated to reality. And it's because we're such a wealthy country, we can have people with you know, delusions uh, you know, running things and they can run things to the ground and it doesn't matter because we're at such a peak of civilization that even if things decline, we're still doing okay. Mm. And so what happened in Afghanistan, for example, is you had uh, assumptions building up to the point where you had an assumption rot, right? And so the idea is they thought that they could do nation building. Turns out that wasn't the case. They thought they could train up an army, you know, uh, before the collapse of Afghanistan, the president was on TV saying, we have 300,000, you know, soldiers trained up to fight. They completely disappeared in the face of the the enemy's progress. Mm. Event after event, complete failure. And then at the very end, uh, the U.S., like, they said, we're not going to leave. There's not going to be a last helicopter out of Vietnam situation. But sure enough, there was a last helicopter out of the U.S. embassy situation. The the U.S. soldiers were defending, like, a strip that was in the middle of the city. Uh, Somebody made a political decision to to, to leave the Bagram Air, Air Base. It, it was very well defended. They could have evac- evacuated the 20,000 U.S. citizens that were there, but somebody made a political decision that we can't do that. So the military was forced to respond. Mm. And essentially, it could have ended horribly. And do you know what the response was? I mean, it kind of did end horribly. Well, it, it did end horribly, but it could have been much worse. It yeah. could have been like, you know, when the British were driven from Afghanistan, they had to take the overland route through Pakistan. So imagine, it, because it was right next to apartment buildings, they could have shut down that airport if they wanted to. Mm. And And I think a lot of people think that you know, maybe there were some negotiations going on in the background that they would, 
you know, basically allow this to happen in exchange for later on down the line, releasing some of the sanctions on, on them and stuff. But the fundamental issue is afterwards, uh, nobody actually sat down and said, like, what exactly happened here? Yeah. And there was a great book from the Washington Post called The Afghanistan Papers, which uh, he got access to these interviews with uh, soldiers. And it turns out for every single year for the last 20 years, soldiers have said, this is not working. And uh, this needs to get fixed. And there's like these particular things that are going on. There's crimes that are happening in our name, right? And what would happen is that wouldn't get filtered up to the, to the military decision makers or the civilian decision makers. So you had 20 years of assumption rot. And afterwards, uh, Paul Krugman, who's an mm-hmm. economist at the New York Times, said uh, Bagram Air Base, right, basically having a defensible way to exfiltrate your civilians, uh, is the new ivermectin, which is like a, you know, something that was proposed to like yeah. solve COVID or whatever. So basically what's happening is at no point is there ever a feedback cycle where people who make bad decisions are removed. There's, and so, for example, in the British government, my understanding is it's impossible to remove civil servants, like you said, right? And so as a result, politicians come and go. Civil servants remain. And so there's like effectively like a deep state that's determining what's happening. And the problem is they are deeply incompetent. Uh, I hope you don't mind me saying, right? Please do, carry on. So, for example, with COVID-19, one of the ways that you can detect COVID-19 in a population is <laughs> sewage, right? Yeah. So you can detect uh, rates of disease in sewage. There's a program that was launched to, to do that in the UK. It's operating. It gives them a heads-up view of, like, future pandemics. Well, they just discovered polio right. in the sewage recently. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Well, so, they're by the way, they're removing that program. Right. Because nobody cares about it. Because it has nothing hmm. to do with your incentives as a civil servant. Nobody actually, like, cares about the future and is willing to like put their reputation on the line for any specific program because again, you know, there's no, they're completely removed from like living on a frontier or you know some type of situation where there's like a natural selection for cultural codes that are about like surviving into the future. It's all about you know showing up at your job at the DMV. But the the irony thing there though is uh, how we've just had essentially the removal of our prime minister for incompetence. You yeah. know, the most imp- the, the the highest job in in the UK is prime minister. The, the most important job, some would say, maybe others would argue, but either way, he is our prime minister, the equivalent of a, close to equivalent of a president. He's the leader of our country, was very popular when he came in. He was a very popular mayor. Uh, we had a very successful Olympic Games in 2012. He rallied the nation. Everyone loved him. He ended up becoming our prime minister, uh, did okay to begin with. He managed to negotiate our Brexit, which was a very tough negotiation. Not everyone agrees with what was negotiated, but it happened. Um, he navigated part of COVID. Uh, some people argue against lockdowns. That's fair. We don't need to get into that debate now. But the point is, he you know he showed some strong leadership. But behind there, there was a lot of incompetent things going on. There was a lot of potential. I'm going to say potential because I don't know the detail, but de- deals over COVID with regards to. Uh, supply of certain equipment and the and the the tenders going to maybe friends of theirs, but there was the, the, there were bigger and worse things. There was uh, there was this thing called Partygate, but essentially, when people were told to stay at home, you couldn't go to your grandmother's funeral. I've seen the pictures. They're having they're having <laughs> piss ups and parties, at, yeah. you know, and and that was something that shouldn't have happened. There's a guy who was essentially a bit of a nonce, one of the um, uh, politicians, the chief whip, and um, he'd been accused of certain things and. Then he came out that he'd actually been uh, grabbing blokes' dicks in a bar. And so all these things uh, came to, to a head. And eventually, a bunch of politicians said, you know, we're going to resign. And eventually, he's been forced out of his position. Hmm. And, and at the time that was happening, my film director, Neil Berkeley, was over in the UK. And he was like, this is incredible. This would never happen in the US. You know, if it would, Trump would have been gone. But Trump didn't go. 
Um, and so you can you can be ejected as a politician or prime minister uh, within our country for poor performance. You can you can be gone, but you can't. Doesn't seem to be able to do that if you work as a civil servant. That's it right. seems like you can fuck every. I mean, our mayor in Bedford, Dave the mayor, is a fucking incompetent idiot, right? Um, he's, the amount of white elephant projects we have in our town is ridiculous. He's still there. Right. So yeah, it's it's just ironic that we can get rid of the 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 person you think could protect themselves the most, but we can't get rid of these morons. Right. And I, so there's a, so one, so one way to think about things is this thing called selectorate theory. Yeah. So we, uh, we're taught in school that everything's a democracy and every vote is equal to each other. But uh, there's another perspective, which is uh, what doesn't, it doesn't matter what your, uh, what the total population is. What matters is the selectorate, which is the group of people that are actually like making decisions. So for example, um, you, you would winnow down the total population to the population of people that vote. And then you winnow that down further to like 10 people on maybe each side of the debate that are like influence makers. And so if you can convince 10 people, the top key 10 people that you should be in power, um, they'll influence everyone else to vote the party line. And so what happens is if you have a narrow selectorate, uh, you can you generally get more of that sort of situation where like uh, there's more self-interested, uh, self-dealing, versus uh, if you have a wider selectorate, sometimes it can result in increased legitimacy for the system. So the problem in particular for like small municipalities is the the selectorate's very small. It's very small. Mm. There's like, you know, there's maybe a couple of people that run the key organizations uh, that can get people out to vote and who will uh, support you or not support you. And as long as you can, you know, after the election is over, um, like in San Francisco, and I'm sure it's probably happening in your town as well, people who are real estate developers, you know, th- there's a lot of money that can be made from changing one permit to a different type of permit. And, and that those sort of hard to detect backroom deals are happening. And so the primary funding sources for like municipalities are often people like real estate developers, where if you're a mayor, no one is actually monitoring what's happening and you can you can make those kind of side deals. Huh. And, and so, yeah, like, th- like, so for example, let's apply that to like the, the wider America, you know, um, there is a difference between the influence level of like the people who support ESG and the people who are just like normal everyday Americans. So the benefits of implementing something like an ESG are very concentrated, but the costs are very diffused. And so one of the things that happens in America, they've done studies on this, the like whose policy preferences actually have an impact. And if you are one of the like managerial elite in America, like you make more than $250,000, your policy preferences actually end up getting implemented. Do you know whose policy preferences don't get implemented? It's not just the blue collar workers. It's also the business community. Mm. So if you're a small business owner, you have no voice in America. So when you think about things like you brought up the wheelchair ramp example, the the cost of implementing a wheelchair ramp is low for um, like a large corporation. And so for somebody who's managing a large bureaucracy, implementing a wheelchair ramp is no big deal. But for a small company that's just starting out, mom and pop shop in the middle of Oklahoma or somewhere, they can't afford to implement all these different things. So what happens is policy preferences that are related to like how people feel and emotions and stuff like that, they're implemented across the entire country. And it also has the benefit of like they get to use moral language like ESG or whatever to to impose costs on their potential competitors. Hmm. Why, why does Amazon care, you know, like Amazon or Walmart, right? They raise they raise the minimum wage, right? The reason that, so I talked to a lot of companies that compete with Amazon, like locally for talent. The reason that Amazon, it, it's very hard to find people. They're raising the minimum wage and things like that because it's hard to find people. It has nothing to do with like they care about. They didn't give a shit about anyone. Yeah, but they'll put a lot of ads out that, hey, we're, you know, personally raising the minimum wage, like, yeah. you know, that type of thing. So it's a, it's a big issue. 
Yeah. That the use of moral language to push their own self-interested uh, kind of viewpoints. I mean, that's a good setup for where did ESG come from? <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up, we have a BCB group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass. And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors, price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Okay, but uh, Larry Fink, right? No, I mean, I, like, so look, dude, the, the ESGs... Because um, it just kind of appeared one day and then it was fucking everywhere. Everything's ESG. So I think the, the way to think about it is there's these like long-standing trends in society yeah. and uh, people will, you know, 
put papers out about things like ESG for years, and they're, they're ignored until somebody sees a potential to, again, use the moral language for their personal interest, they can pick it up and then they can market it. So BlackRock is, is one example of, of a person who is, um, they have a massive self-interest because the, the fundamental issue with a lot of like asset management is that uh, it's, it's, kind of a commo- it's somewhat of a commodity business, right? And uh, fees are going down over time. Because people, it's become very competitive. So in general, um, pe- people like who are pushing ETFs like BlackRock, maybe, you know, they face competition from index funds from someone like a Vanguard. You, you can get the same returns for a far lower fee, and, right. and and so, you know, they have issues with differentiation. So part of the reason that Black, so BlackRock raised like at least I think one fund was one point four five billion dollars for like a single ETF, like day one. And you can charge higher fees for ETFs than you you can for an index fund. The composition of his climate change ETF versus an index fund is like completely the same, but he can charge higher fees for it because they can put the ESG tick stamp of approval. Stamp of approval. How big? How big is BlackRock? Just out of interest. I mean, it's one of the largest because they seem to like own fucking everything. Well, so that's part of the thing too. There's a little bit of confusion about that. So part of it is that BlackRock is like a custodian for other people's assets. Yeah. There's also a separate part of BlackRock that's like, you know, running these ETFs and stuff. So $9.6 trillion under management. <laughs> under management. So that, that's yeah. not their money. They're okay. managing the funds for other people. Yeah, of but, course. But the point is because- But, they, but they, they've got influence over that. Exactly right. So because they're a, a point of centralization, they act as a choke point. So if BlackRock starts talking about ESG, the reason this guy's talking about ESG, he's got an awesome ETF that's raising a lot of money. It's exciting for him. But the way that filters down into the rest of society, now everyone else has to think about ESG. Isn't it? Is it not that he has this? Uh, Larry is Larry Fink, right? Larry Fink's the CEO, and he has this newsletter, or yeah. this letter he writes once a year, or his newsletter he writes. A lot of investors do annual yeah. letters, yeah. But he has one that like everyone follows. It kind of sets the course for what people will be thinking about. And he brought up ESG in that. That's what I was told. Yeah. So uh, it's possible that that was like the the kickoff point for like the the new level of interest in ESG. But the background is that basically. A bunch of people came up with studies that, uh, you know, you, you, this is like a long running thing. Like in the past, they would uh, use this term triple bottom line. Like, oh, you got to care about the environment and the social and all this other stuff in addition to your profit. Um, there, there are people who are academics who, because again, academics uh, are negative value add to society. They need to find some way to like, you know, show some value because they're like, they're, you know, it, they're not, um, they're not adding much. So th- they end up like coming up with new ideas to try to differentiate themselves one of the things was, hey, uh, companies that are ESG related, uh, are they make more money than companies that aren't ESG related. Like you can do good by doing well. Now you can do good by doing well, that's for sure. But the specific like research that's been, that, that is like the underlying uh, bedrock of ESG, according to Aswath Demidoran, who's you know top valuation professor at NYU, is probably uh, you know, pretty shoddy research. And, and, and so, like, to push these movements, you need the research to be done. Then you also need figures like uh, Larry Fink to, to buy in. But um, ESG in particular seems pretty weak, like the, the underlying tenets behind it. Because part of the other thing, too, is social scalability. Like, you know, one of the things we like about things like the Internet and Bitcoin, uh, you know, Nick Sabo has this concept of social scalability. We may come from different areas and have totally different interests, but we can both use the Internet and we can both use Bitcoin. There's no part of using Bitcoin that requires um, you to like embrace my values or using the internet where like I need, you know, you, you got to sign off that, uh, you know, John Lennon is a bad person or something, right? Mm. So everyone can use it regardless of who you are. 
Part of the problem with ESG is it's not socially scalable because people have different values. How do you decide what is good? That's like one of the most, you know, that's trying to force other people to, you know, adopt your definition of what is good is like a function of conflict in human civilization since mm. forever. So it's unlikely that, uh, you know, they're going to converge using, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, buzzwords uh, to come up with some idea of what is good, what is bad. It's also very difficult, like I pointed out earlier with the example of Nestle and Coca-Cola, mm. to uh, come up with, uh, you know, the actual impact of, of a company on the climate. So the research that's supporting it is bad. Many people like these you know, companies like you know, Larry Fink, he's trying to sell uh, funds. Many CEOs, He doesn't actually give a fuck about the environment. I, I think I, I would be shocked. I, I think most people would disagree that um, CEOs of major corporations care about the environment more than they care about running their company or their own self-interest. Right. I, I think it's. I, I think a lot of these people are using moral language to like push their own, you know, incentives. How much have you actually looked at ESG from the S and the G? Because to me, at the moment, ESG really seems like it should just be called E. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like I see very little work discussing the SNG. It just doesn't seem to be part of the public discourse. No, I agree with that. Um, I, I mean, I have like looked into like certain examples, but like the, the problem with like like the governance thing is, I mean, there are like we have a wealth of knowledge of what constitutes good governance for a corporation. Uh, it's just that's not the like that's already figured out. So there's no way that you can charge more fees for governance, or you can build an academic career on pushing corporate governance, like the best corporate governance. Um, same thing with the social, you know, like I'm not, I'm not sure maybe if somebody could put forward the case of, of what is a good example of like social, but it just goes back to Milton Friedman's point back in the 1970s that like, you know, if you have your own personal prejudices, you should manage that on your own time. You shouldn't steal from other shareholders and redirect resources to stuff that, you know, helps you. Hmm. So in terms of ESG, um, like I said, I've not got involved in the debate. As somebody who is obviously concerned about the environment, I'm interested in responsible investing, but at the same time, I don't think there should be any... I think that's a personal choice, right? Um, but the ESG thing has started to feel... I don't know, just there's something... What was the word we used? Uh, sinister. sinister. There's something that feels very sinister about it. Um, something that feels... Like, and I think it really came to a head when you see Tesla uh, being taken off at the index that ExxonMobil are on. It's like, how were we meant to interpret that? You know, as somebody who is trying to understand ESG, what the goals of ESG people are, how are we meant to interpret Tesla, who've done probably more than, like you said, I think you said more than anyone for furthering the cause of uh, protecting the environment. I mean, they've created electric cars. They've removed the combustion engine from a car, right? And they've made it popular. They've sold hundreds, maybe even millions of cars now. They've been removed. But ExxonMobil, who I have no idea how much... Uh, uh, how much oil they dig out of the ground every year. But if they're clearly, if there's an index which is about ESG, which we know is all really about E, it doesn't make any sense in this world that ExxonMobil are above Tesla. Now, have they manipulated it using the S and the G to put them above? I, I, what's going on? How are we meant to even fucking interpret Well, this? I mean, I think in the specific case of Tesla, that's exactly the case, that they right. manipulated the S and G aspects of it to exclude Tesla. But I, I think no, nobody doubts that the reason why they're excluding uh, Tesla is because of the, you know, the, the CEO, Elon Musk, is what I would call a commercial elite, and they are uh, political elites. So right. in every you know, human civilization, there is a competition um, between the political elites and the commercial elites, and they resolve it in different ways. So in um, South Asia, the way that it's resolved is that um, the political elites run things, and they, they adopt 
uh, things like socialism uh, to have like a choke point on new industry, like the, you know, giving people new licenses and stuff. And then they select commercial elites who, who are non-competitive politically and give them the licenses. And then they, they filter like, you know, through corruption bribes back to the political elites. In our situation, he's got too much power. Then He's got it? too much. The, the thing is that Elon Musk represents um, like a potential political threat as well, because he is obviously very charismatic. Um, and he's, you know, he's done good things in the world, like SpaceX and Tesla and stuff. Also, he doesn't give a fuck. He'll call shit out. Yeah, he's a little bit of a wild card. Yeah. And so I, I don't think he's going to get adopted um, by the political elites as like somebody who's a shiny example, because like the fact that he, he makes these functional institutions, he's, he's got like three or four companies on the side just running constantly. And uh, it basically, it, it, it makes them look, it decreases their legitimacy that they have, you know, the entire economy at their disposal and they can't do anything. And Elon Musk is over here, like, you know, solving the world's biggest problems. Is, is, uh, is the situation with Jack Maher in China a, a good example of this uh, competition between... Uh, That's actually a perfect example. Perfect so, example. So do you know the reason why? So the thing, th- there's a couple of reasons why I think Jack Ma was displaced from his company. So the first and most obvious one is he, and the one that's given in the newspapers is that um, he publicly critiqued uh, China's state uh, banks and yeah. said that he was doing a better job at serving the poor than they were. Um, and, and so, and then he, you know, kind of disappears for a while. (laughs) Has he been found yet? (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm sure he's been found and he's just like retired or whatever. But the, 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 the real reason that I think that he was taken down and, uh, is because basically, you know, he would have uh, events like Warren Buffett has events like, Hey, everyone who's a shareholder come down, everyone who's an employee come down and hold like rock concerts. And so then he, and then, so he kind of represents us like a, it's kind of a distant threat, but he, he represents a challenge to like, you know, Xi Jinping and those types of leaders. You know, you ha- you, for someone like Xi Jinping, he centralized power. You can't have people who are on the side developing their own power base. So, for example, he removed this guy, uh, Bo Xilai, based out of Chongqing, because Bo Xilai was basically pushing um, like, you know, red songs and like the, the cultural revolution culture. And that presents a challenge to what Xi Jinping was doing. So mm. he, had, he, he had to remove that threat. Um, and it's not sinister. It's just this is how the world works. Like people compete for influence and, and uh, power and stuff. And I think like, you know, this is what's happening with Elon Musk, that he's getting kind of sidelined because he he is kind of speaking out in ways that go against the political establishment. So mm. I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about it. They control the indexes and, um, you know, they don't like him. So <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. So in terms of where ESG has gone wrong, um, and the kind of disastrous consequences for the people who've tried to implement them policies. Well, we were spending some time looking at what's happening with Sri Lanka. Now, there is a the Sri Lanka situation is quite complicated because um, the tourism industry was destroyed by COVID, which was a very important industry to the country. I think it generated something like five billion a year. So they they were dealing with that uh, a collapsing currency anyway. But in terms of uh, their drive for becoming kind of high on the ESG country index, um, they ban pesticides, right? Which has seen a collapse in the yields of the crops. What I what I can't understand or what I can't see with that is, um, would they have been able to cope with that if the economy hadn't collapsed itself? Or is that one of the largest contributions to the collapse of the economy? I can't, where's the chicken yeah. and egg here? Yeah, so the mental model that I, I use for that is uh, assumption rot. Kind yeah. of like I talked about with Afghanistan, it's like issues compounding on top of each other. Yeah. And they're impacted by reality and the whole structure collapses. So first of all, the reason why uh, I believe Sri Lanka you know, focused on becoming like an ESG darling is because 
um, you know, the structure of the world is such that the U.S. is the world hegemon, and uh, it's kind of like a like a like a prison yard where the U.S. is the shot caller. And so, if they don't like a country, they kind of you know call a code red, and uh, you know, it's basically open season for domestic rivals to then like replace that uh, r- ruling elite. And so, in Sri Lanka. Um, there's a couple of things going on where, first of all, they face external pressure because, you know, prior to this, they, there was a, a long running civil war. And, yeah. you know, they the ruling elite in Sri Lanka essentially, you know, committed like a massive ethnic cleansing of Tamils yeah. uh, in their country. So they face pressure from that to avoid that pressure. They started adopting the moral language of ESG. And so because of something. So, so they, they they're connected because when when. when when did the war with the Tamils end? Because they basically well, it's carpet a few year, It's a few years ago, yeah. but that problem is that that's like a long-running potential issue for him. Yeah. And so there's a thing called the chain gang effect where um, you, you notice how, like in America, Democrats and uh, Republicans have like the opposite view on every single major issue. Yeah. And so what happens is uh, if you're an ally of mine, I'm going to defend every single one of your positions. And in response, you're going to defend every single one of my positions. Right. So basically by becoming an uh, ESG darling, uh, they were able to take advantage of that chain gang effect. Okay. So now a lot of people who would have potentially looked into Sri Lanka's human rights record, they don't care because they're uh, they're adopting ESG. But does it, did they have pressure coming from the US to adopt ESG? Uh, was essential, because this is something Epstein talked about, Alex Epstein, when the, the interview, he said essentially, while the US continues to use as many fossil fuels as it wants, it was putting pressure on other countries, poorer developing nations, to adopt more renewable energies or more ESG-based policies. Yeah. Now, are they doing that to, are they, I mean, are they considering them testing grounds? Well, so there is a history of like, for example, the British, uh, you know, tested like bombing from planes in their colonies before it was used in World War One. So there is a history of, you know, Western countries uh, testing out things on colonies. Uh, they used uh, mustard gas on, on six soldiers at one point, I remember uh, reading about. So, so that is a possibility. I think the reality is that it, it reminds me of this book, um, Fire Upon the Deep by Werner Vinge. It's like a sci-fi book from a while back. And this uh, human civilization is, is not as advanced as another civilization. So they, they go over to this dangerous area where there's like an ancient archive full of like, you know, esoteric knowledge. They break open the archive and they think that they're going to, you know, advance their civilization, but it releases like a horrific artificial intelligence that destroys their civilization. <laughs> so I think the problem that a lot of developing nations run into is they do want to advance. They see the U.S. as advanced and they assume that the U.S. or Western countries are giving them good advice that's going to help them advance, not realizing that um, the, the group of people that developed the United States or, or Britain were, folk, were kind of like, they had a different mindset of like frontier-based mindset and focused on overcoming natural uh, resource constraints and things like that. And the group of people that are directing things now are several generations removed from that type of building culture. And in fact, what's happening is like, like exactly what you said, I think it's a combination of things though. So like in the Sri Lankan example, by adopting ESG, they internally consolidate power as well, because now the United States and other, other groups will accept them. So they prevent coups and things like that. Mm. Um, but th- the problem is that, again, every single nation-building exercise that the West has tried has totally failed. They can't build, not only internationally, they can't build domestically. So when they give advice to other people, it's it's not good advice. The people who staff things like the World Bank are, uh, you know, they're not as good as they were generations ago. And even generations ago, they were pretty bad. So <laughs> like the, the, the person who is an academic who's completely removed from even running a small business you know, let alone managing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, let alone managing a country, they have no place telling other people how to develop their country. And I'll give you the example of like Ghana. That's a more clear example. 
where um, you know their country was developing, their country was using coal to develop, and what happened was um, you know the World Bank started to give them advice on how they should develop their power grid. You know they pushed things like solar power, and it kind of you know it, it reduced the reliability of the grid, and uh, now you know they're facing a lot of issues. It's just wherever you look, when you start taking advice from people like the Germans, you're in a bad spot. Like I'll give you an example: is like the Poland situation. So Poland is, you know, it could be a good industrial country. It is industrializing currently, but they use coal. So the Germans who, again, their grid is like the worst possible grid you could possibly have. It's causing international issues. They are, uh, you know, they're pushing, they're using things like the EU commission to uh, limit the ability of the Polish to grow their economy. And the reason why is, again, using moral language to push their own incentives. They don't want a powerful Poland. They don't want a culturally autonomous Poland. So they're using like, uh, language of ESG to reduce their ability to develop their country. Every single country that's developed so far, uh, there's a thing called an energy transition. Yeah. Okay. So it took us thousands of years to go from using our hands to using animals. It took us hundreds or thousands of years or a thousand years to go from, uh, you know, from that to using wood and biofuels. It took us a couple hundred years to go from wood and biofuels to coal. It took a couple hundred years to go from coal to, uh, uh, oil, natural gas, a couple, couple decades to go to nuclear. But like Britain is like the one that's furthest along. But even in like the year 2000, our usage of wood as our energy source was still 10% as a, as a global country. So every single country that's advanced has used these natural resources to advance. Hmm. So why are they telling countries like Ghana or Sri Lanka that you should use you know renewable energy? Because so so, and let me take a step back because one of the things that Andrew Dressler did not address and Alex Epstein didn't address is grid reliability. Mm. So this is what it all boils down to. The, the way that it works is there are some time periods when the sun doesn't shine. Yep. There are some time periods when the wind doesn't blow. So these renewables, have, they're intermittent and they have low capacity factors. And so the way that a grid works is, you know, uh, when people go to work and when people turn on the AC in the summer, there's like spikes seasonally and daily. And so there's like a minimum amount of energy that you're always going to need. To fill that what's called base load, you use things like coal plants and nuclear power. Um, and then to fill in the gaps when there's spikes in demand, you use peaker plants, which are uh, run on natural gas. Mm -hmm. So you strap a jet engine to the ground and you turn it on, right? Um, and so what happens with renewables is because they're everything else is dispatchable, renewables are intermittent. They turn on. It's like a total wild card. And the analogy that I would use is if we're on a volleyball team, the way that you win as a volleyball team as an amateur is you just set up. You know, you focus on setting up plays for everyone else on your team. Energy, or renewable energy is like a player who's coming in and just constantly trying to spike, but they have like, you know, bad skill set. So they, they ruin the vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and so that's like the, that's kind of what it all boils down to. Um, when you think about the situation in Germany, right? So Germany's, first of all, what's interesting is Germany's green movement is partially financed by Russian natural gas interests. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Huh. I didn't. Danny, I'm going to need a receipt for that. Yeah, look, look into the, I mean, Hillary Clinton has like admitted this. She didn't admit it. She was, she was annoyed by the fact that this was happening. Just look up, uh, you know, Russia financing uh, Germany's green movement. So Germany's green movement has 16% of the uh, federal parliament in Germany. So they're a major political force, like even more so than here. And the way that they established their leg legitimacy was like by being anti-nuclear decades ago. So they're not going to go away from that. So they're anti-nuclear. Why are they anti-nuclear there? I mean, that's the one thing I've, I've not understood anyone who's anti-nuclear because 
I know we've had two significant you know, nuclear plant situations. Obviously, Hiroshima, not Hiroshima, that was where the nuclear bomb was. Um, Fukushima. No, no, um, in Ukraine, um, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Yeah. But Chernobyl was like uh, an interesting set of factors within a communist state where you know, people under pressure made stupid mistakes with an old, uh, an old reactor. Fukushima was just like a badly positioned uh, nuclear reactor uh, which was damaged during a, um, an earthquake, right? Tsunami, yeah. A tsunami from, from the earthquake, right? But they, they, you know, they're two unique situations. But how many nuclear plants are there in the world? Well, first of all, let's just pause for a yeah. moment there. Like, you know, how many people do you think, just based off your common knowledge right now, think uh, died from Chernobyl or Fukushima? Well, I know Fukushima was one. Fukushima was one, and that's even disputed. Somebody had lung cancer. Well, so what happened is basically there was a scare that there's going to there's a nuclear disaster, and so because there's like decades of uh, green movement propaganda around the impact of nuclear, the Japanese government evacuated 100,000 people that didn't need to be evacuated. 1,600 of them uh, died. So like some people died from like suicide. Some people died from like old people died from like heart attacks. So more people died from the evacuation than died, like you said, like from from the actual impact. And I think directly in Chernobyl, the number was like 43. And then th- there was like a, a second impact on um, potential cancer rates. But, um, you know, there was like a ton of people who um, ended up like aborting their babies because they were afraid that they would have like radiation issues. But that wasn't the case. So like, it's like a massive issue that... 31 from Chernobyl, apparently. Is that right? Yeah, that's roughly in line. I, I, I thought it was 34, so. But but so the, the point is like so the thing you got to understand they're low nu- they're low numbers yeah they're they're very low numbers and it, again when I talked about assumption rot right y- are you familiar with Carl Sagan I know the name what do I know that he he's like um, the equivalent of Neil deGrasse Tyson from right. decades ago uh, and so he established his reputation as a scientist and then he used it to push this like emotionally driven anti nuclear message and there's many such cases like that like so these people like you know. I don't want to pick on him, but obviously Andrew Dressler came in here and, you know, he gave a very emotionally charged um, position based on his reputation as a scientist. But like the Carl Sagan situation was he used an, he used a, a weather model, which was totally inaccurate. So he said if there's like a single, I mean, I forgot the exact statement, but it was like if there's nuclear reaction, we end in like a, you know, it ends the world. That is a nuclear winter, dust gets put up in the atmosphere forever and it's never going to come down. It's going to ruin the world. It's going to be a total apocalypse. That that that's not that's not that your model is wrong, mm. right? But that's what's influencing people uh, who are making decisions. So, is it fear of a meltdown of a reactor and what that could happen over a wide area? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. That's part of it. I, I think it's and, and then the other thing too is that like, look, th- I mean, and this is like a conspiracy level stuff, but it's also true. In Germany, like natural gas interests drove the rise of the green movement. Yeah. So, in Dan, America, Danny, Danny, you found that, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, in America, natural gas interests are pushing uh, renewable energy. So, do you know? Do you know why the natural gas resources? Like, do you understand that? Like, when you add renewables to the grid, it increases the unreliability. Mm-hmm. So, to meet the crazy demand, you need more natural gas to fill that gap. Right. Okay. So, Russia is secretly funding the environmental movement, particularly in Germany, to help pressure the closure of nuclear plants. He claimed. Uh, I mean, this is Devin Nunes, but there's much better sources. I mean, this guy's a politician, but there's there's right. much better uh, there's much better sources. Look up Hillary Clinton. You know, th- that's the source that I think most people would trust. Um, hmm? Or not? <laughs> yeah. Well, depending on you know the people who are pro uh, who are you know pro ESG might trust that resource a little bit better. But 
I mean, that's that's pretty worrying, right? Do, so you well, so you no, weren't aware of that? So no, um, but you can see why they would push it because it's just going to make them rely on more energy from Russia. So so the way that Germany has created their grid is they have this massive pipeline from Russia to Germany that mm-hmm. funds the natural gas. They have a ton of renewables that they've added. And then um, they used to have part of their base load driven by nuclear power. They're actually shutting down those power plants. They had a, a vote recently, should we not shut down our nuclear power plants? And they voted to continue to shut them down, even though they're currently facing the prospect of Russia shutting down uh, natural gas to Germany in the winter. So like people could die, like old people could die from cold exposure. And, and so one of the fascinating things about this that um, I discovered when it came to the situation in Ukraine, like a lot of these European politicians were open sourcing their thoughts. By the way, your threads and your information on Ukraine was fantastic. Is that right? Yeah. yeah appreciate good. that. Yeah, I got you. a lot of messages from people on the side, like this was interesting. Did, did, didn't you have one epic long thread? That's the thread. That yeah. How, how many tweets you at now? I mean, it was Have you lot. hit the limit? Is there a limit? Well, if you if you tweet uh, in a single point in time, there is a limit. But it's since 25. I was just constantly yeah. adding, it, it wasn't an issue. But yeah, it was like several hundred. Yeah. But but so the the, the point um, that I was going to make there is uh, European politicians knew that at putting sanctions on Russia would increase gas prices and would uh, make it difficult to like heat homes. So they said the way that we should mitigate this. This is like openly stated as part of the decision making process is uh, wear a sweater. Okay. So when People are dying this, potentially dying this winter. You need to understand, like, they know that and they want to impose their worldview more than they care about, like, managing the grid uh, responsibly. Like, my understanding is in the UK, there's, like, a potential crisis brewing as well. Like, it's not just Germany. Yeah, the crisis in the UK at the moment is mainly to do with cost. Uh, So I think it's, is it today that the... um payments hit people's bank accounts? I thought it was in September. No, I think it was today. So 8 million homes today received a payment of something like 316 pounds. If I've hit that on the on the nail, I'd be pretty impressed. Try and have a look on um, like Sky News. Yeah. But um, yeah, so energy prices have, have essentially tr- tripled for a lot of people. It, it tripled, over tripled for me, actually. Um, and But we have caps. And the caps, they have like uh, certain dates where they expire. Uh, in October, the current cap's going to expire and they expect it to go even higher again, and then again higher in January. So the main issue is just with the cost. People just cannot heat their homes to the point where we we have um we have more food banks now in the UK than we have McDonald's. That was an interesting stat I saw recently. People just can't afford to feed their families. Are going to food banks and getting handouts. There is now an open discussion about heating banks where they think people because they can't afford to heat their home it'll be too cold. They're going to be going to certain places to basically sleep so they don't die from the cold. Yeah. Which which I can't even get my fucking head around, like a Western-developed uh, uh, liberal democracy. Now, a country like the UK could be in that position, but we are in that position. You know, there's people cannot afford to heat their homes. I it was there, some, yeah. It was today. And they've got a second payment in in autumn. So how much was it? £326. £326. And 8 million homes. 8 million homes. Yeah, yeah. so that's probably means-tested in a certain way because there's more than 8 million homes. So, yeah. yeah. so I, I think... That's a really interesting point. The point you made about uh, so the thing is that it's not um, the all the interventions. So this is a this is a very strong statement I'm going to make, but yeah. it's supported by the science. In fact, okay, the social science literature is clear that social policy interventions tend to fail. Yes. So uh, Nick Zabo has this criticism. Uh, I think it's called like the the lab experiment criticism, where he points out that in things like social policy, they make an experiment in the lab and then they scale it up to the entire society. 
uh, without a second thought. And those experiments tend to fail. You can't extrapolate from a small experiment to the wider society. Um, and, and, and so the problem is part of the assumption rot in our society is we've been doing that for like 70 years since mm-hmm. the 1960s. And so when you think about like people can't afford to eat, um, in the past, if you couldn't afford to eat, you would have a strong family structure around you yep. that you could depend on. You could depend on your neighbors and stuff like that. So part of the problem is, um, since the 1960s, they've done all these social policies. Like for example, um, well, there, there's just all kinds of policies. It's resulted in things like there's a, a massive increase in the number of children who are growing up uh, outside the two-parent homes. There's also a massive increase in, or a massive decrease in the number of civil society organizations. So, like one of the things about America that's so beautiful is like there, like uh, there's all these organizations. Like if you're into archery, there's an archery range near your house. They have like linoleum floors. They've got like plastic chairs, and uh, it's a bunch of you know people who are just interested in that topic. You get together, you meet up, and you talk about it. The number of those has massively declined in America. And what's happened is when you introduce money into the equation, you destroy, it's like a, it's like a cholesterol for like, you know, uh, bottoms up civilization. So when de Tocqueville came to America and he wrote Democracy in America, you know, hundreds of years ago, he, he remarked that Americans love civil society. And they seem to just come up with groups for everything. You know, if there's a branch in the road, they'll just, you know, form a, a committee to remove the branch in the road. <laughs> but today... It's illegal to remove branches. Like, it's not illegal, but it's like- I know you get This it. type of intervention is like, it's kind of frowned upon. And people don't even have that habit of like solving their own problems. Well, so yeah. Um, and look, it's it's also, it's politically driven for different reasons. And I, I'm not sure how much it comes from empathy or how much it comes from uh, protecting your own political position. But what will happen is we will see, we will see civil unrest. And we, we're starting to see protests uh, various protests in the UK with regards to the cost of living. But I think we're going to see, yeah, been fairly peaceful so far. I think as we get into the winter months where things are getting more expensive, people can't afford to feed their families, can't afford to heat their homes, I think we're going to see probably more extreme civil unrest. And perhaps they're trying to prevent that. But you know, that's why these people know they're getting a payment now and a payment in October. Yeah. And, and the th- like, so the thing is, I mean, social unrest is very bad, but it, m- for the vast majority of countries, it doesn't uh, threaten regime legitimacy. So they don't care that much. You can burn as many cars as you want. They don't, they don't care about you or your freezing family. They're, th- you know, to the extent that it impacts their electoral uh, prospects, yeah. you know, they're going to set up these like heating things. But the more responsible thing to do would have been to build more nuclear power plants. Of course. So, what, what, what's the lag time? How long does it take to build a nuclear power plant? So the problem is, um, effectively, it, it takes very long. It takes uh, years, and it costs. And so the criticism of nuclear power right now is it takes years to build. It's far in the future. You know, it costs billions of dollars. And the response should be that first of all, the best time to start was yesterday. Yeah. Second best time to start is today. today yeah. And then secondly, if you build a nuclear power plant every single year, you're going to improve your ability to build new nuclear power plants. The only reason mm-hmm. the cost is so much is because no, like people build them sporadically. So massive cost overruns and things like that. It's partially driven by that. And there's also these like unnecessary regulations. And then there's also this, again, the scaremongering. That's the fundamental issue. They say, oh, nuclear waste in your backyard is going to cause an issue. The amount of nuclear waste in America fits in a football field. Get these 50-foot stacks, and it's like a single football field. Yeah, it's covered in that book, The um, the Fifth the fifth Risk. Is it The Fifth Risk? Oh, I haven't read it. it. sounds interesting. The Fifth Risk. That's yeah. the book. Yeah, I yeah. think it's covered in there. They talk about... Um, but that is a that is a pro government book. Let's just be clear. That's that book's great. a pro state book. And, and what it's talking about within there is is there's certain things that must be centralized, but not a lot. But they're saying 
one of the things that should be centralized is nuclear waste and yeah. why. And it talk, it compares uh, how nuclear waste is treated in Russia compared to the US. And the Russia situation sounds super scary. They just pour right. concrete over it and forget about it. Whereas they have you know, proper facilities for it in, in the US. But I mean, I don't know. What is the risk with nuclear waste? Is it what is the actual risk with it? It exists. I don't want to drink it. I don't want it to. I don't want it to. I don't want to shower in it. But what is the actual risk with it? Okay, is it? It's not explosive, no. No, I. I mean, I, I think the risk is, is it like just contamination. Yeah, contamination, and then like proliferation, and then one one of the issues is that since it lasts for a long time, um, you know, the risk is like um, the social structure around maintaining that uh, corrodes and it just kind of gets left there as like a potential risk as well. Right. Um, I'm sure there's more risks. Maybe someone who's uh, anti-nuclear could actually elucidate that better than I can. Right. Um, some of the trust, the, the people that I trust, like scientists, have said that uh, there isn't uh, that big a risk f- for things like nuclear waste, particularly if you can store it safely. Part of the big debate in nuclear in America is like the storage sites that they've developed to like keep it secure. There's large protests against that. Because that's like a, a choke point that if you can't manage the waste, then you can't build a new one. Um, so, I mean, overall, the trend for nuclear is that it's just massively overstated. Because one of the things that's not considered is like nuclear power plants are zero carbon emission. Hmm. So there's like hundreds of people dying every day from like lung cancers and things from all the coal that they're yeah, course, throwing yeah. in the you know, atmosphere. Nuclear power doesn't have that issue. The other thing, too, that like someone like an Andrew Tesler isn't talking to you about is like the issues with... Um, the disposal of things like wind turbines and solar panels. But even more importantly, like, you know, I'm not an environmentalist, but like there are certain things that you just can't replace, like extinct animals, right? If an animal goes extinct, that's actually like a major loss. And wind turbines kill endangered birds. Well, yeah, but I've looked into this one. Okay, so that that's an interesting one you should bring up, like the number of bird deaths. Yeah. And I know no endangered birds, but number of bird deaths. Uh, and, and it was brought up to me, it was like, how many, Dan, Danny, look up how many... Um, birds are killed by wind turbines. But then you can go and look up how other things have killed birds, like windows. Oh, so, right? so it's, yeah, it's something like, there's an actual chart. 234,000, it says. I mean, I don't know how they come up with that number. But look after causes of bird deaths. I mean, I know, I know this. We, we looked at this together. Yeah. And it's kind of like a mocking chart, though, because it put cats in there. Right, yeah, but cats. So 2.4 billion killed by cats. But they kill them for a reason, right? Yeah, because they're predators and they're hungry. Then, yeah, I mean, I think it's... But, I, so, so you've got um, wind turbines, 240,000, but you've got 600 million by collisions with glass uh, buildings. We have vehicles, 240 million. Like, we want vehicles, right? Well, I, I just... I just so, so, so... What like, I'm saying is there's better arguments against wind turbines than, than bird I, The death. reason I say that is because I've been in the investment committee when we okay, like, yeah, we're going to invest in this wind turbine. And part of it is there's an environmental report that says... You know, this wind turbine is the environmental report. It's in the, the the migratory path of XYZ bird. You know, this number of birds has been killed. And it kind of struck out to me that, like, for me personally, sitting there hearing that and then hearing somebody say, it's okay to build it, it, uh, it stuck out to me. That's more of an emotional argument. But Yeah, but just like birds fly into shit and die, right? You, you know, they, they, you see them fly into windows because they don't see it. Yeah. I just think, I, I think if you go... This is my problem with present, some people presenting data. They present wind turbines, 234,000, and then they don't raise a I mean, I, I don't know. Like, so just to be clear, I don't know the source of this chart. They're saying there's a median slash US average estimated. Nobody, like the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is not going around picking up dead birds. So I, I don't, like, I would like to look into this a little bit further before, you know, calling it a day in terms of the There's, there's a few sources. We actually looked at a few. And, and the numbers actually vary okay. quite widely. But the point being is birds fly into shit and die, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. So, so then, okay, like, 
Okay, so then I think there's a better argument against wind turbines yeah. in that the the external cost to produce them isn't met with the the green benefits. Also, if nuclear can produce everything we need at the same production cost or similar, then we should just be on nuclear. Um, I think the arguments for and against all these different power sources, they, I tend to find where the point the person's arguing from, that's where their data comes from. I mean, look, that's true. Like, for example, when you hear renewable people arguing, they say, uh, like, one of the points that, some of the points that Andrew Tesler brought up was that um, re renewable energy is cheaper. So he's talking about the marginal cost that you get from adding a wind turbine or a solar farm, but he doesn't talk about the cost uh, it takes to maintain excess capacity. So for Germany, they've added all these wind turbines and solar panels. They have roughly 50% excess production sitting on the side. So their entire old system is still running because the, the renewables that they're adding are unreliable. The amount of fossil fuels that they've been able to reduce as a percentage of their like whole system, it's only declined by 14% since 2020. So the whole civilization, the German civilization is focused on increasing renewables. They've increased it 14%. There's an entire side infrastructure that they have to maintain to keep up the pretense that they're doing renewables. Right. Um, some of the specific uh, additional points that he made is that, yeah, so he says like all the studies show that renewables are cheaper. That's because they look at things like the marginal cost. They don't look at the long-term cost. They don't look at the fact that you have to maintain grid reliability. All the countries where they, uh, you know, states where they implement renewables, the, the power costs go up. In Germany, the power costs since the year 2000 have doubled. Okay, to, to for like your average consumer, doubled. Um, the, and then the other Hold thing- Hold on, to, uh, what's your time frame on that? Because uh, mine's tripled, but it's mainly because oh, of the increase um, in energy costs. That's got nothing to do with renewables. It's yeah, it's, do from, with it's from a time period like uh, 2019. It, it's from like 2019. It's basically before the recent spike okay, in prices. Fine. It's not like a recent metric. It's okay. from, and the, the source is also uh, Vlaklav, Schmiel, who's like a well-respected scientist. The other points that, um, oh yeah, so like even, and so like even one of the things he talks about is, um, uh, you know, high gas prices uh, are driven by the market. And so commodities go up and down, whereas renewables, once you plug it in, it, you know, it stays the same or whatever. And like, he literally made the point multiple times that the price of renewables uh, is flat. And so once you have it, it's, it's guaranteed low cost energy, but like, that's, that's not how supply and demand works. And the more renewables you add to a grid, the more unreliable it, it becomes. Is and that true of ERCOT? Because how much of the ERCOT grid is now renewables? Well, I think it changes on a day-to-day -day basis, but I can, I'll have a look. Well, yeah. that's just the point. Because you, so look, dude, the other thing too is that renewables like solar and wind, they're often not built in like, like where the energy is used. They're built in like faraway places. So sometimes there may not be like a, you know, transmission a strong line. transmission line yeah. from one spot to another. So I, like, again, and, and I mean, how much are they used? In, in Germany, Solar is like 10% and then wind is 20% capacity factor. That sucks. And, you know, what do you think it is in, in, uh, in Texas? Like how much wind energy can you add before the grid collapses? I, if I'm not wrong, at one point he said we can make the grid. 100%. Oh, no, 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 no 70%. He said 70%. Yeah, 70%. Yeah. Okay. So Germany's at like whatever, like 30% or 40% and their country's collapsing. Hmm. So like, do you really want to take a risk with some, I mean, I'm sure he's a nice guy, and I'm sure that he has the studies to back up what he's saying. But what I'm saying is a lot of the uh, academics that are producing this research are doing it because that's what's popular in society. Like, that's obviously where the incentives, what their incentive structure is based on. It's not necessarily the actual truth. There's also, like, peer pressure within their, within their Imagine, cohort. Yeah, yeah. 
Right. Texas, natural. Soda's 2%, nuclear 11, 2% coal, 23% wind. And, and Texas is not even a good example yeah. because, like, for example, they had that cold snap recently. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, they, the, the people who are running the grid, um, they underinvested in um, making their natural gas peakers, uh, you know, you know w- uh, cold resistant. So, yeah, that's like a huge issue that that utility had. But that doesn't mean that natural gas is now, you know, worse off. Like, the more renewables you, you put on the grid, the more natural gas you're going to have to make up for the, the issues that they're causing. Hmm. Like, I mean, how many countries are the ESG uh, type of um, policies going to collapse before people realize, like, this is not like a real way to run a country? So it seems to me like the, 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 the very easy and obvious solution just is nuclear. That's right. And I think that's why maybe uh, someone like Michael Schellenberg has been really pushing that point. I think Elon Musk even made that claim. He would go and what, eat a sandwich outside one. Or, um, that's why even... Uh, I mean, France is uh, restarting nuclear and uh, uh, Japan is restarting nuclear. I think there was like another country. Um, it's another German-speaking country, but it's not Germany. Maybe Switzerland. That They're also taking a second look at nuclear. Like nuclear is the clear solution, and it's some. And so this is like the the other issue that we run into is like, um, there's a great article about, um, you know, the, how um, the, the yuppies don't understand Bitcoin, <laughs> and part part of the reason is there's like a, there's like a two by two matrix which is like prestige and uh, understanding, and there are some things which are very low prestige, but they work really well. So for example, if you want to increase somebody's lifespan, one of the good ways to do it is to get them uh, doing like compound lifts. In America, compound lifts are associated with like, you know, it's kind of like a lower class type of thing, like Arnold or whatever. It indicates that, you know, like Paul Krugman, for example, he does like biking, cardio based. So, but if you actually want to improve the lifespans of uh, older people when they're younger, you want them building higher bone density and uh, strength so that when they're older, they don't like break a leg because that that's how you rapidly reduce somebody's lifespan. There's all kinds of things like that. Are you familiar with Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Of course, yeah. Well, I mean- I've not done it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should we roll? No, no. no I'm not. I'm not. I'm, Choke me. Yeah, no, no. I'm. I'm uh, my my brother is uh, kind of into it, so I kind of like it as well. But one of the interesting things you learn about Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, you know, uh, well, so first of all, you know, there are other forms of fighting that were more prestigious in the early 1990s, like boxing, of course, yeah. right? Uh, but what they found through the first uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship was uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was successful, and the reason why was. These guys were going on the beach in Rio de Janeiro and getting in fights every single day. So they and then um, they were going back to their dojos and they were um, uh, they were playing with each other, uh, but they weren't doing it in a way like boxing where you actually hurt the person. So they had much faster feedback loops. Right. right? So as a result, when the Ultimate Fighting Championship first happened in the early 1990s, it was clearly the best system. Right. It was clearly the best system. But if you if you were just starting out, you would just say like. You know, obviously boxing is better than this. Maybe wrestling is better than this. Maybe if you're a 200-pound person, you can beat up the, you know, 150-pound guy. That wasn't the case. So, the, and and oftentimes what you find is like I, I talked earlier about what, what drives like civilizational functional institutions. It's oftentimes groups that are on the frontier. So like the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu people in the Rio de Janeiro Beach. Okay, uh, you know maybe Muscle Beach in California when it comes to the weightlifting stuff. And so those people who are on the frontier, maybe it's technologists in Silicon Valley, you know, like 50 years ago when they're first, you know, piecing together things in their in their garages, those people often have good ideas, but they may be low status. And if their ideas get enough acceptance, they then become high status. So what I would suggest to a lot of people is like, you shouldn't be too worried about doing something that's potentially low status. Like if you talk about Bitcoin, 
the primary argument, uh, I think, against Bitcoin maximalism, the, the biggest attack vector that they have is, you know, you're a uh, toxic maxi. But like many of the things that the Bitcoin maximalists are pushing, which are considered toxic, are oftentimes things that are highly functional, but just low prestige right now. So for example, you know, they've been pushing um, the food pyramid for decades. It tells you to have 10 servings of bread. Yeah. So if you have 10 servings of bread, obviously that's unhealthy. We all know, everyone yeah. knows that. But it's considered bro science. The official science supports the 10 servings of bread, right? So when the Bitcoiners say, eat only meat, like in person, no one is like forcing people to actually eat meat. I've had dinner with some of these guys, you know, the, the worst Bitcoin maximalists and stuff. And there's like a vegan from another country there. There's somebody who literally opened up um, uh, the Soylent bottles, right? No, no one is actually mean in person. The point is a lot of these positions are taken to increase the status of low status things that are functional. So it's not just, it's not just the meat. It's also, um, you know, nuclear power. That's like another one. You know, five years ago, if you said you were supportive of nuclear power, people would assume you're like some industry shill. Yeah. But nuclear power is the correct solution to this problem. Bitcoin is the correct solution to the issues we have around monetary policy. Many unpopular things are actually correct. And so if, you know, if you're not willing to embrace like an unpopular opinion here or there just because it's going to make you look low status, you know, you're not going to be one of the people who's improving civilization. You're going to be one of the people that's like, you know, in Afghanistan yeah. and the last helicopter out or something. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Oh. Hmm. Danny, where you at? I'm still trying to keep up. <laughs> um, is there anything we've not covered? You know, I, I had some notes talking about um, talking about uh, energy in particular. So I like I, I did some research uh, to base what I was saying off of scientific facts. Um, and I had some notes on uh, energy transitions. I think we talked about that. Do you know what I think is needed? When I interview Alex Epstein, he has to defend his position because his position is kind of his identity. And yeah. it's not that I don't think he believes it, but I also think there are incentives involved in being that person when you've written that book and people are buying that book or you're given talks. But I do think he has a lot of useful things he said that have shifted my opinion and others. And when I interview Andrew Desler, it's exactly the same. They're essentially the same interview just with two different arguments. What I think would be useful would be a scenario where maybe me, you, Desla, Alex are just sat around a table and saying, hey, let's work through this. We don't even need to have microphones on. We don't need a camera. You know, we don't need a, um, a camera. Let's just sit down. Let's just talk through these points. Let's, let's, go and, let's go and investigate the facts. Let's go and find out. Like, Andrew, you think we should have solar panels. Okay, let's go and investigate the facts and the risks and you know, what, what happened that. Yeah, uh, and you know, Alex says we should continue burning fossil fuels. Well, some of us might go, actually, you know, that's that's crazy. Well, actually, we need nuclear. I don't. Whatever the arguments are, just get all the people around the table and work collaboratively, like aggressively collaboratively. Not trying to prove you can win your argument in front of a camera. Not trying to prove to the people listening. Not your virtue signal to your audience. Just get around the table and say, let's just figure this shit out and we'll see what answers we come out with. Probably it's something. That, that kind of weaves between the middle of both sets of arguments and gets to a logical conclusion. But you're doing it because you're trying to get to the right answer. I think the thing you have to establish with that is, what is the answer we're trying to find together? We're trying to allow humans to flourish with enough energy you know, for a, a sustainable period of time without destroying the environment. Alex would agree with that. I think Andrew would agree with that. So I think that working together rather than arguing your points is probably something that needs to happen. 
Well, I, I disagree a little bit there. Um, okay. So there's a Nick Zabo blog post where he talks about how you should evaluate information. And uh, one of the things he talks about how, you know, pop, like oftentimes, so there's two ways. Like, so first thing is uh, from information complexity perspective, simple messages go faster. Okay. Okay. So simple messages can spread better than longer messages can. I'm not a nuclear scientist. I have a difficult time uh, talking about nuclear because it's just a side interest of mine. But even if I was a nuclear scientist, it would be difficult for me to, you know, uh, answer every single objection that people have. But when somebody says, you know, we got to support the environment, that message can spread, you know, very quickly. So that that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is that, um, you know, what is the power level behind each person's position? So somebody like Alex Epstein, he's probably, I assume that he's uh, getting some good book sales and he's, you know, very well funded potentially. I know he had a talk with Peter Thiel. I imagine that, you know, he, he can uh, find a nice job, you know, if he needs to. So he can feel comfortable stating his positions. But the thing is, his opposition is far more powerful than he is. He may have a book and that's fine, but the people he's competing against for people's opinions have the entire like American university system pumping out, you know, stuff about how renewables is the future, the policy of the future. If you go on the Stanford website right now, right, look up Stanford energy uh, research, right? And then there's like a group of people who are researching uh, energy. And uh, I looked it up because I figured, okay, what are the smartest people you know, thinking about nuclear and things like that I'm learning or maybe a potential solution. They didn't have anyone who was researching nuclear. <laughs> you know, the number of nuclear-based PhDs fell off a cliff. So the problem that we run into is like there are incentives outside of any discussion that we're having. There's like large social movements that are based on demonizing things like nuclear um, nuclear power. In fact, something interesting to look up is look up the number of, you know, nuclear-based PhDs over time. You'll find that it, it falls off a cliff. So the problem is that there's like a network structure that has like multiple choke points. And if you control one of those choke points, we talked about selectric theory earlier. We do have one guy. We've got Jack Baker. There we go. Jack's in the house. Yo, what up, Jack? <laughs> um, no, but We should talk to him. Yeah, yeah. let's get him in here. Yeah. Um, if, if, you, if you scroll up, I think, um, scroll to the very top. And, uh, well, I'm not sure if this is the exact thing, but at some, if you click on research, maybe... Basically, the, if you looked at like the actual like publications and things that they were doing, right? Okay, here's renewable energy. Here's energy storage and grid modernization, end use efficiency, policy economics. Um, if you notice on the left under renewable energy, they don't list nuclear, despite the fact that it's. Well, it's, uh, it, some people argue that it's not renewable, right? Oh, there's, they say, there's yeah, so fossil and nuclear. But that's a weird thing because it. I think putting nuclear in with fossil. Is categorizing it. They're categorizing. Yeah. So they have the power to create these categories. But also, I don't think it should go in with renewable because it's it's not renewable. It's, yeah. It's like its own category. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but so then the other interesting thing is if you look on the top right where it says uh, energy storage and grid modernization. So one of the holy grails of the ESG movement is uh, battery technology. And just to be clear, the, the timelines... The My understanding of battery technology is n we're never going to be able to scale batteries and that's totally to the right. size needed. It's so fucking ridiculous, you, right? You need battery. Like, it, batteries would be a huge solution to the way that um, the renewables intermittency disrupts the grid. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, like, the timescales that they're, that they're proposing, like, AOC proposed zero carbon emissions by 2030. You know, other people are proposing zero carbon emissions by... Uh, 2050 and like Vaclav Smil, at least, who's one of the most well-respected um, researchers on energy transitions in the past, thinks that's completely unrealistic. Mm. Just as an example, the way that we heat our homes in America is like largely natural gas. So there's little 
pipelines, going from the larger pipelines to every single house in America, there's like a furnace, heats up the house. So how are you going to remove and replace all of that infrastructure in a short time frame, like in five years, 10 years? doesn't make any sense. Similarly, um, electric cars are like 1% of the current vehicle fleet. If you have a paid off car, are you going to pay $50,000 to get a new electric vehicle? It doesn't make any sense. No. Just from a cost benefit analysis, the vast majority of people are not going to be transitioning right away. The other thing is, in terms of industrial production, okay. they cannot produce the amount of electric vehicles they would need. They cannot produce the amount of they solar panels. They have a battery panels. problem with electric cars as well, don't they? Yeah, but also just like an industrial problem that they don't have the facilities like to, to just pump out all these cars. No, at the same time, though. To replace the current vehicle fleet. No, of course, but there, the transition is happening and, and all car manufacturers are moving to uh, making available hybrids and electric. So like, it's not a reason not to do it. it like, It's not a reason not to do yeah. it, but I'm just saying their vision of the future includes multiple uh, false assumptions. Yeah. And I fear that without people calling these things out, because the reason that people aren't pointing out these issues with their worldview is because it's like a low status thing to do. So if you care about civilization- well, you get demonized. So like- you, you will get demonized. So like Alex Epstein's fine. Like I'm sure with his book sales and his talks, he makes enough money. So he's got no social risk apart from perhaps anyone in his family who thinks he might be a bit of a nutter. I don't, by the way, I don't think he's a nutter, but they might think he is because he's, he's presenting a counter argument to the, the accepted norm. Yeah. Someone like Andrew Desert, I think, has a social risk, certainly within his... Uh, he works in the universities. He works at Texas Tech. He has a risk at deviating away from the narrative that has been agreed within his community. Like, I don't know what that risk is, but we know within universities that professors have been cancelled for holding certain views. We saw everything that happened at Evergreen, uh, Evergreen College with uh, Brett Weinstein, and you know, uh, somebody we spoke to said... Uh, get in tenure and how you, you you will not get tenure holding certain uh, opinions these days so there's different social risks there yeah and so so there's there's uh, two things i want to dig into there the first in terms of um the way that there's like a culture war happening right mm. so isn't it interesting that the way that you're solving the world's issues is by removing a competitor in the office next door <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i mean that that is just time after time the way that the cultural revolution happened in china was the same way there um it, you know, they're anytime one of these destructive social movements come into power, the way that they empower people is like by saying you should point out people who aren't, you know, supporting, you know, Xi Jinping thought, for example. And so similarly here, if you support nuclear, I imagine it, you know, it does cast a, you know, some doubt on your future funding. But the other interesting thing here is like, you know, something you said stuck out to me, like, you know, imagine somebody like Alex, who is questioning all these things about the, the current assumptions. Um, so then, the, the problem with accepting that is it is difficult to like change your assumptions about the world. What if, you know, uh, the way that people are making decisions isn't based off what they think is good for society, but it's based off their own incentives. That's like a big shift to make in people's minds. And uh, I'll propose another shift here, which I think is true, but it's a very controversial statement, which is the introduction of the university system in the United States was extremely destructive. So I talked earlier about how mm. um, there was like a massive increase in the number of people who went to university starting in the like, like 1960s. Yep. Did you like, did you know that, and, and even just high schools, like spending in the United States on education has increased five times since roughly uh, the 1960s or I think, actually I think my statistics are 1985 to 2015, all these. Mm-hmm. Education spending's increased five times. Math scores, flat. Reading scores, declining. So adult literacy in the United States is actually declining. So they're spending more and more 
percentage points of GDP on education with worse results. When you think about healthcare, healthcare spending has increased from something like 5% to 16%. That number is probably out of date. I'm sure it's higher now. And the only reason that life expectancies increased since uh, the statistic is because people, um, you know, had healthier habits, like they drank less, they had less cigarettes, things like that. Completely unrelated to the massive increase in healthcare spending. Do you see that chart that came out recently in the growth of administrators versus physicians? Oh, yeah. The so industry? that's a perfect example. Yeah. Um, I think you should pull that up. Yeah. Pull up that chart. Have you and- seen that, Danny? No. Uh, search for physician, unless you've got it on your Twitter. I, I didn't. Marty Bent tweeted it at some point. Yeah. So the thing is, this is true. This is true not only in uh, healthcare, but it's also true in education. So the number of teachers is not as increasing nearly as fast as the number of uh, administrators. This is in the US. I try to find the equivalent for the UK, and I don't think it's as high. I don't think the the, the it's, it's it's as radical as this. But it's insane. But I, but they're they're on the chart. They're putting different acts in. They're putting more bureaucracy in. Right, right. Yeah, which goes back to where the whole conversation started. This is your DMVs. Yeah. yeah, everyone is now a DMV employee. Uh, and and, and um, sorry, just to, I think I got I lost my point a little bit there with the university system. All of the things that increase our quality of life were invented before the university system was like expanded in the 1960s, and they were uh, invented privately, without government help. So the narrative that we're told in high schools and colleges is there's these people in the universities. They have tenure, so they can think free thoughts. They come up with new inventions. And then innovation flows from the universities to the uh, general public and to companies who, who commercialize the technology. The, the reality and the documented history of this is many um, inventions are invented by practitioners or engineers who are like doing things. And then they're documented by academics who then get the credit for inventing them. So that's one thing. But then also what improved our quality of life? Everything from like refrigerators, microwaves, um, cathode rays, television, uh, radios, uh, running water, right? All of these things were invented before the 1960s. And part of the increased quality of life was um, increasing the adoption of these technologies. Right. Right. So since the 1960s, outside of like the mobile phone and some of the innovations that we've seen in like uh, semiconductors, a lot of these things were already invented and it's just, they're being implemented. So like the the claim of legitimacy that the university system has, that they're inventing all these things is like fundamentally false. You sure do sound like a libertarian. No, I'm not a libertarian. Absolutely not. <laughs> you sound like one. <laughs> I mean, think of So my argument against libertarianism is really simple. Yeah. The, the, the groups of people that are able to, you know, expand and improve their quality of life, it's not necessarily in libertarian systems. You think about the way that the South Koreans expanded their economy, uh-huh. Japan. Uh, South Korea was like a dictatorship or like Singapore. It's kind of run by one person. Um, you know, it's just not the case that necessarily libertarianism is the best policy. Now, when you get into a situation where the government is so inefficient and bloated and stuff, I definitely understand the appeal of libertarianism. Me too, yeah. The, the most interesting paper I've read, um, which I think about all the time, is this analysis of the GDP of Somalia. So there was a communist uh, dictatorship, right, in mm-hmm. Somalia, and it was so destructive and, and, and um, you know, destroyed uh, the GDP so much that literal constant warfare was better than that. And so they they tracked GDP by looking at the number of exported cattle in the next country over, I think, Ethiopia. And they found that the number of cattle exports actually increased during a period of like constant warfare. But it was it was still better than the communist system, which was like actual straight up destruction all the time. So I, I think it sounds like to me, it's like you are 
pro-democracy but recognize uh, an expanding uh, inefficient state is something that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and the thing about democracy is like, um, you know, the founders didn't implement a democracy. They implemented yeah, a republic. republic. And yeah. the reason why is because like, you know, you get like mob rule and things like that. It's not very good. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, man. You yeah. crushed it. Love this. Uh, wow, a lot, of, lot to think about. A lot to think about. Okay. Um, anything I've not asked you that you wish I had asked you? No, that's pretty much it. Um, I think the the one thing is, uh, you know, I am I'm planning to launch a newsletter. So if you check okay. out my Twitter, Jitsudu underscore on Twitter, uh, there's like a review link. If you sign up for that, uh, appreciate it. Well, I will do, and we'll put that in the show notes. And let me know when it's live, and I'll retweet it out. We'll make sure people do that. But this was brilliant. Uh, you're going to have to come back on the show again. We're going to have to do this again. I'd, I'd really like to dig in to um, the idea of governance in the state with you because I, I, I am a pro-democracy person, and people say, well, the U.S. is a republic, but it has the method of democracy and that sure. you can vote and such. And and I am a reluctant status, somebody who is um, very unhappy with, certainly with what's happening in the UK, the size of our state, the corrosion that's caused in society. But I, I'm very interested in digging into you know, how that is improved, uh, like what the revolution is that comes with that. I'm sure you'll have some better answers uh, than I have. Um, so appreciate you coming on, man. It's great to finally meet you. And yeah, I think people are going to enjoy this. Nice to meet you in person too, man. Catch you next time. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talking about Bitcoin. All right, I will see you all very, very soon.